Hello, everybody, and welcome back to Season 7 of Sequelizers. I am your host, as always, Jack Chambers, and joining me, also as always, it's Matthew Stogden. Politics and poetry promises these are lies. Sequelizing is as close as we get to the handwriting of God. <laughs> that's that's not go. a bad Gottlieb impression. There's a clue for your listeners. That's all right. Yeah, not bad. Not a bad Burn Gorman. Not bad. <laughs> and also, joining us, as always... It's Tim Aiton. One, don't you ever touch me. And two, don't you ever touch me. <laughs> yes, very good. That's a that is a great delivery as well because you see this it, the second he grabs his arm and he's like he just looks it's like we just have one second and you see Elba's performance in his face. He's already not listening. He's three steps ahead. Oh, brilliant. There's a few hints for you listeners. Mm. <laughs> I said a character name. Matt said an actor name. Yep. Little hints there if you don't already know the film we're fixing this episode. Star Wars. But before we get to talking about the film and its predecessor and fixing it eventually, let's give a little thanks to a few people who help us make this show and make this show possible on executive producers on patreon.com slash sequelizers. And uh, funnily enough, as we mentioned last week, this episode is in fact a Patreon pick by one of our executive producers. The man, the myth, the legend, I guess. <laughs> the Jonathan, kaiju. the kaiju fighting badass motherfucker, <laughs> Jonathan Firth Clark. <laughs> this coming up is Jonathan's pick. We've already had another patron pick earlier on. We had Future World, which was picked by one of our other executive producers, Mr. Stuart Main. <laughs> And last, but certainly not least, the man whose pick has been the most predictable of all the picks. <laughs> and good lord, you know it's coming. It's Mike Salvia. <laughs> Thank you very much for your support, gentlemen. Jonathan, in particular, I hope you enjoy this episode. We'll be talking a lot, a lot of kaijus, of big mechs, and it's not an anime. Sorry, Matt. No anime. Mech suits! But lots of mech suits. There's going to be a lot of mech suit talk. Because this week, we are fixing Pacific Rim Uprising. Which Bad I heard title. described as the Independence Day resurgence of Pacific Rim. And I was like, Ooh. yeah, kind of. But it's better than that. Yeah, that's... Resurgence is unwatchable. <laughs> yes, resur I think resurgence is significantly worse than Uprising. Yeah, and I, I, I'm not even coming from an Ashens. I hate everything about Independence Day. Kind of <laughs> I actually don't mind the first Independence Day, but yeah. So let let let's get stuck in. Often where we start these episodes with your history with the franchise, and and weird enough, we've gone way back into the 70s before we even covered films from the 50s. Before Pacific Rim, pretty recent. It's not like oh, mm. when did you first see it? Oh, my dad introduced me to it when I was a kid. <laughs> the first one came out like the previous decade in 2013. <laughs> so it's yeah. like, yeah, my dad introduced me to that when I was 23. That's weird. <laughs> <laughs> in my 20s. Um, so yeah, I, Matt, I can only assume you saw them both at the cinema because, of course, you did. Do I even need to ask? You don't. I did. There you go. Okay, Tim. <laughs> <laughs> how and when did you first see? The first Pacific Rim, and then its uh, unfortunate sequel. I mean, I, I, I saw the first one in the cinema because 
people who've who followed the podcast for a little while will know how much we as a, as a group and as individuals love Guillermo del Toro mm. and as soon as this film was announced just like oh yeah it's del Toro and he's making a film about giant robots fighting city-sized monsters i was i was just like well i will be there <laughs> sign me the fuck up i was exactly the same way yeah uh, so i saw that in cinema i did not see uprising in the cinema i'm afraid because uh yeah as as i'm sure we'll get into as much as i liked the idea and and certainly if you'd have asked me when i came out pacific rim oh do you fancy a sequel to that i would have said hell yeah it does not match up to the original it's not del toro directing and i think word of mouth was was bad enough that i was like you know what I'm fine. I like the ori- the original is enough for me, but obviously now I have seen Uprising and it's fine. Yeah, yeah. Mm. I'm know. I'm in exactly the same boat as you, Tim. I saw it based on Del Toro doing kaiju and mechs. What? I was like, oh, is it based on anime? No, it's an original IP. I was like, what? <laughs> an original IP with like hundreds of millions of dollars in budget made by Del Toro in a big studio. Oh my, Idris Elba? Yeah. Ron Perlman? Amazing. <laughs> Sign me up in every way possible. And then I heard nothing but terrible word of mouth. Well, maybe not terrible. Mediocre is probably the more pro word. Mm. Word of mouth for the second film. And I was like, yeah, no, I'm fine. I'm sure I'll watch it at some point. And mm. that some point was earlier today. Yeah. <laughs> To clarify, I have watched you, it. Did you both just watch it for the first time today? Yes. Yes. Fantastic. Yeah. Tim Fantastic. and I, I think we have the exact same viewing experience for these two films. Impressive. Yeah. I like that. And uh, it, it's an odd one to uh, watch such a like high production giant monsters fighting each other on a what six point two inch phone screen on my de- <laughs> on my desk while I'm working. As God intended. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> I mean, it's a high resolution screen. I'm getting all the lovely bits of CGI and whatnot. But mm. yeah, not exactly my <laughs> cinematic of experiences. One headphone in, making sure I'm not waking up Emma as she's sleeping after a night shift, <laughs> and I'm there like watching it out of the corner of my eye while, <laughs> while on my lunch break. <laughs> How exciting! Um, but Matt. Rather yes. than talk about your first viewing experience, because I went to the cinema, I liked the first one, I went to the cinema, I didn't like the second one. I'm guessing Actually, your... that's not accurate. Interesting, because I want to delve in a bit deeper, because I know, I, I would have guessed anyway, but I know mm, because we talked about this before the show, you actually reviewed both on the redrighthand.co.uk. So that's correct, that's correct. Why don't we go for that little approach? Give us some give us some snippets and some highlights and your, your thoughts of the first... The yeah, two Pacific Rim films the, from the time capsule of my thoughts because again yeah. obviously everyone's thoughts and this is what I talk about when I'm doing my reviews yes your opinion can change over time you can learn to love a film more and oh it's really grown on me or you can tend to hate it after a time but the truth is for in terms of a story sometimes the feeling you have the second you leave the cinema it's kind of done its job if yeah, the story but... did something to you and stayed with you for at least 10 minutes after you saw the end of the film and you were like still feeling something job done that sounds like a silly thing to say, but that's important. So that's why I tend to write my reviews as fast as I can, the day after all the all that evening. And you're often, for those who don't know, you often take like physical notes in the cinema as you're going. I, know I, I was sat next to you during Cats, and it was an interesting experience. <laughs> yeah, of me, you you taking notes, and I would just lean over and go, "What the fuck?" Every every sort of <laughs> ninety seconds or so. So yeah, yeah. I, I do appreciate you kind of do it as you get a quicker turnaround as possible and you also have kind of the notes to refer to there as well so yes i'm intrigued thinking what 2013 matt thought of the first 
Pacific Rim. Because like I said, Tim and I went in pretty high expectations, I think, with like Del Toro, mechs, Kaiju, fuck yes. Mm-hmm. What, what did what a, uh, what, 20, late 20s, Matt? 20, yeah. Let's see. So 2013 was seven years ago. That would be 29-year-old Matt. There you go. There you go. Uh, 29 year Matt, who who at that point was going to get married the next year. I was planning my wedding at this point. Oh, that's almost like 29 year old Jack if COVID 19 hadn't happened. Yeah, <laughs> precisely. But more importantly, let's go back well. to, to 1972 and discuss Mazinger Z, the, the first proper. No, I'm kidding. <laughs> the origins of Mech and Kaiju, yeah. <laughs> no, um, right. So here's the tricky thing. Pacific Rim came out, and for all intents and purposes, for the way it was advertised, I was like, as you guys have described, Del Toro, Mex, Kaiju, fuck yes. And then within 10 minutes, I thought, I have all the opinions I need about this movie. And by the end of the film, nothing had changed. I had not changed my opinion. Now, it wasn't necessarily a negative opinion. It just wasn't what I was expecting my opinion to be. So everyone turned around, oh, Matt must love that. It's like, yeah. Matt had issues. Um, <laughs> Matt gave it a three out of five. Um, interesting. Okay. Which I've given to other films. That so that, that, that is interesting because I'm wondering, and as Tim and I kind of hinted at, and as we always talk about on the Rotten Tomatoes thing, it's probably not a classic sequelizers drop off of like the first really good film and then a mm. terrible second film. The Our, our old slogan of the mm-hmm. fixing the bad sequels to good movies kind of thing. If you gave the first one a three out of five, <laughs> I, th- I I feel like going in not knowing that, I would have assumed you would have given, and don't don't tell me just yet, oh. I would have assumed you would have given the second one like a two out of five. But I think there's a much bigger gap between those two films <laughs> than <laughs> a, <laughs> one red hand or one star, however you want to say it. <laughs> one big old slap. <laughs> one big old slap. But yeah, that's interesting. That's interesting. Mm-hmm. And I think the first one definitely had a mixed reception in terms of both critics and the public. I know a lot of people who had either high expectations or even if they're not the kind of people who were like, oh, Del Toro, I want to see that. They were just people who are genre fans mm-hmm. went in and were disappointed by it or or it just it didn't click with them. I think it has become to a certain degree kind of a cult classic. Mm. Um, the fact that it is, you know, in, in the age of the sequel and the prequel and the TV reboot, you know, it's an original IP. It's not really got that many stars attached to it. It's kind of weirdly an underdog for a multi-million dollar film about robots fighting aliens. Yeah, I would I would wholly agree with that. And I also think that, and, and this is what I, I, I won't, Go full into my review. I'll give you a little capsule in a second, but you have to remember the time as well. 2013. In 2011, Transformers 3 made $1.2 billion or something like that. 2014, I think we mentioned this on our best of year episode or whatever it was, um, Transformers Age of Extinction was the highest grossing movie of that year. Again, one point whatever billion it was. Ugh. This film did not make that money despite coming out. It's like, oh, what's the difference? And for the for the general public, yes, Transformers is a phrase they know, but you see a trailer, oh, it's big monster smashing stuff. Cool, big robots, I get that. I've seen that, Transformers. Yeah. So why didn't it do better? And I don't mean just critically because the Transformers films aren't exactly critically revered until Bumblebee. Yeah. Um, it's, it's because... There was a lot going on, and it was also, for a lot of people, it was fucking confusing. Right, so my summatory 
in a few words, conclusive conclusion, as it were, sorry, was... Your conclusive conclusion. Conclusive conclusion was, in the hands of anyone else, this film would be a hollow, schlocky mess, but Del Toro lovingly recreates an enormous part of his childhood for contemporary audiences. Big, fun, and exciting, but possibly a little too loyal to the tropes of the inspirational material. And... For, I, I would in no way fault any of the production design, the visual effects. Seven years on, they hand so well. You can see things in the fight sequences. The score is really fun and really good. There's a lot going on for this movie. There are two major elements that I have problems with, and a lot of people did as well. Thing number one, the acting. I like a lot of the actors involved in this. I like them in certain things. I didn't like them necessarily in this. So Elba's fantastic. He stands out head and shoulders above everyone else. He's brilliant. Rinka Kikuchi, I love as well. She's great. She's mostly fine in this. Just does holds her own well. Charlie Hunnam, I like in a lot of stuff. I don't like him in this at all. I agree. I think Charlie Hunnam is pretty crap in the first he film. He is a weird choice for this. I don't I like, get it. Don't, I can't think of a Charlie Hunnam performance where I've been blown away. Sounds like ones where I think, like, good, but n- n- mm. no. I wasn't blown away by that. I thought it was okay. Yeah. Yeah. Yes, Son, Sons of Anarchy is where he gets a chance to long form it and do things actually because it's a TV series. And by the way, he shot Pacific Grim in the middle of Sons of Anarchy. So he, in the middle of the series, yeah. he goes off to, you know, he's got his long hair and his beard, comes back and he's been in prison for a few years. And he's got some short hair. And it's like, yeah, because he just did Pacific Grim. Not as jarring as in Prison Break, where um, Peter Stormare comes back from doing Constantine. That's <laughs> completely different hair. Um, but yes, Charlie Hunnam's a strange choice. People change their hair. It's fine. Yeah, that's true. I mean, I'm, I'm bald now. Um, so there's a lot of really interesting actors used oddly. Um, a lot of weird performances. The world building is fantastic, though. And then there's thing number two, which is the story, which is a really horrible thing to say because it's Del Toro. Now, the, I said earlier about the first 10 minutes. I don't know the exact time code, but you get maybe a Lord of the Rings style five fucking introductions. When you think yeah. you're settling into the movie, it's still a flashback. And you're like, what? wait, what's happening? This is still prologue. Okay, okay. Are we in the story now? And so I, it's really hard to actually get a bit of a timeline sense because you get Charlie Hunnam's fucking strange accent, Geordie slash American. <laughs> it's it's very weird. Which is his real accent, by the way, folks, because he has he's lived in America almost as long as he's lived in Britain. But he's from Newcastle, which is one of the strongest and most unique British <laughs> accents there is. Yeah. So he has this fucking weird sort of American, sort of British accent that has Geordie twangs to it and mm. then American twangs to it. And then obviously he played Jax Teller in Sons of Anarchy for years, which is a very like clearly very Americanized role kind of thing. Mm. He just lived that role for years, basically. And thus his, if you've ever heard him interviewed, it's fucking weird. It is weird. Christian Bale's a weird one too, because he's Welsh. Yes. He's, he's not... Welsh, but sounds like he's kind of from London and then has also has some Americanisms yeah. in there as well. I mean, I get it. You, you know, you're a product of where you're, where you're well and where you're from. And that makes complete sense. It's just, it's just jarring for us to listen to because it sounds like someone's doing a bad impression. But it's like, no, it's just his voice. Anyway, so his prologue, um, him banging on about, you know, we made this, they came from the deep. We thought, they, I do love that eyeline. We thought they would come from the stars, but they came from beneath us. Great. Fantastic. Like, like, like the subversion. Turning on his head quite literally. Then we built monsters of our own. We started to fight back. We started to win. Then they went away, but then they came back. And then we started doing it. And then we went on a mission. It's like, hang on, hang on, hang on. How many years have passed? Are you alive for all of this? Was this like in a couple of years? Because it sounds like, you know, oh, then we got complacent and we started making game shows about kaijus. It's like, 
again, was this literally the space of a year? Because if you base it on real world tragedies like fucking Fukushima or 9 11, yeah. yeah, I mean, yes, okay, you have films about these things. You could argue that's us processing it, but you don't necessarily have a fucking theme park ride element to it. There's, I mean, it's it's a very strange thing to have. I always know it's a couple it, of messages. It almost implies that it's like at least a couple of decades. Right? Yeah, exactly. That's, that's generational assumption. shit. Yeah, like you, you become so complacent. Like maybe, maybe um, uh, Rally, which is Charlie Hunnam's character in the first oh, one. Rally, he yeah, don't get me started. He was a kid when it was all happening, I guess, and then he's grown Probably. up. And I had Charlie Hunnam is thirty-ish, thirty so it's been mm, like 25, sure. 30 years, something like that. Was was my assumption. Um, and to dive into the second film, but obviously we're not getting into that yet, but we will sure. do. They do the same thing in the second one. John Boyega has like a three-minute fucking <laughs> Harrison Ford-style intro at the beginning of like, yep. yeah, there were kaiju, and then we fought them, and then they came back, and then they left again, and then we fought them, and then everyone died, and then the kaiju died, and then we built Jaegers. Mm. And it's the same thing from the first one. Yeah, again, like okay. I I don't begrudge that too much because it is. It's establishing a universe, and I agree. It's like the world building, some yeah. some elements of it are with like the game show stuff, but it's not like it dwells on that. I feel like the first one, for the most part, the world feels pretty well thought out. Oh, I wouldn't, I wouldn't disagree with that. I think it's the pacing that's the issue. I think it's twenty minutes before you realise what's actually the fuck is happening and when the story actually starts. It's the equivalent of a triple A video game where you play the game for five hours and then finally the title comes up and think, holy fuck, now? Really now? <laughs> oh, like Assassin's Creed three. Yeah. Where you play a completely different character for the first like third. Yeah. And then it's like, hey, <laughs> remember that hey. guy from the box art? This guy. Oh, oh, okay. Now I actually get to play the game. Yeah. That's weird. So that yeah. pacing threw me off because I wanted to settle into the film. And I, w- I will say this, and we're the first comparison between the two films, I think it's, Jesus, is it half an hour before the first actual fight in, in the second film? It, it takes a long time for anything to happen that's cool. I, I have some time codes for how oh, long how good, long is it good. until we see an actual kaiju and how long how long do the first... The first fight is 27 minutes into the movie. There you go! Fucking hell! The first film, at least... I'm, yes, okay, it's all over the place and pacing's terrible, but you see a lot of shit. It gives you a lot of stuff. And the first kaiju is an hour and 10 minutes into that film. <laughs> because um, we'll, we'll definitely get on to this. There is barely any fucking kaiju in the second film. It's I, I found it interesting, the comparison between the first and the second one, because the second one, although there's not as many kaiju, um, and we'll get into that. Yes. And certainly the kind of the big fights don't happen until half an hour in. It's got more action um, than the first. Like the first one, really, there's only two and a half and a half big fights <laughs> with the kaiju. Yeah, you get the brief. opening. You get the opening brief encounter between Raleigh and his brother and a kaiju, which is is them getting their ass kicked basically, yeah. and only lasts maybe like three minutes. Mm. You get a quick shot of the Americans taking on a kaiju. You get little bits of little flashbacks to Idris Elba fighting kaiju. Mm-hmm. And then there's two big showcase fights. There's the one that's in the Hong Kong Harbor fight, which obviously has very has multiple kind of different stages to it in the water, fighting one of the kaiju, fighting the other kaiju. But mm. but it's all one action scene, one big that's true. That's action true. showcase. And then you have the undersea battle, which is the the climax. And not to jump ahead to kind of 
talking about the second one, but it felt like the second one threw a lot more fight scenes in there mm. that didn't really feel necessary. Mm. Um, like, it felt like they were trying to compensate for a lack of... Like, it didn't have the world building. It didn't have that well-thought-out world that the first one does. And mm. and, and I, I agree that there is some odd pacing to it, but I think it is a Del Toro thing of he... He likes to create these worlds and then he wants to spend time in them. He wants to yes. be able to walk you around inside them and go, look at all this cool stuff I've thought of. And like, yeah, mm. like there's people worshipping the kaiju. So like, let's show you a temple where they get worshipped. Let's show you the black market. Let's yeah. show you, you know, the louses that live on them that are the size of Rottweilers, you mm. know. <laughs> um and so it's interesting, I think, because uh, I agree that the pacing is odd in the first one. But to me, I, I think I am a particular fan of the first one. Like, I don't I don't think Charlie Hunnam is terrific, but I don't find his performance particularly, like, distractingly bad or anything like that. Yeah, I'm aware of it in a way that, uh, in a slight discomfort, shall we say, but I'm I'm sold on it. I still watch it and go, yeah. Yeah. I, th- yeah. I, I, I don't know Garrett if I Headland like him. Tron Legacy. It's like, it's fine. <laughs> I don't know if I like him individually, but I really like sure, his sure. relationship with Mako. Um, yeah, yeah. And I think that's the kind of, the fact that they have the, the drift compatibility conceit mm-hmm, mm-hmm. and it roots the, the giant robot fighting in an emotional component. Yes. You know, adds that in is, is part of what I think makes the first film so great. It's not just like, obviously it's quite a, cursory element but it 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 gives you a relationship to follow and to develop that you mm. that means the fights have an an additional emotional stake to them yeah. and you know that there has to be kind of an emotional and mental component to it before they can even get to the fight yeah i, I mean j- just very briefly it's, it's it's anime as fuck oh um, yeah. it is yeah. yeah because if i take like just the example of a show called outlaw star ooh Late 90s, I want to say? 99, maybe? 90s, yeah, yeah. Yeah. And one of the main conceits is that there's a ship called the Outlaw Star, which has a certain faster than light drive or whatever. And in order to sort that out, uh, Melfina, this sort of bio-android girl, has to go into this fucking sort of liquid tube and interface with the computer. And she has to be naked because, of course, she does. Um, because anime. And, because anime. And all that kind of stuff. And, and you know, and, and then but Gene Starwin, the pilot, you know, he, he actually captains the ship, as it were. So there's so many things going on in it. And it's like, yeah, it, it's it's a conceit that in a cartoon you go, yeah, that makes sense. Um, whereas in a film you go, hang on, hang on, hang on. So they don't just steer the robot. No, no, they don't. They have to plug in and have a brain synchronized thing. It's like, yes. And I, okay, if you take Warren Ellis's uh, Castlevania on Netflix, arguably the greatest video game adaptation ever. That being a TV series and that being ridiculous and dark and very well animated makes it fucking fantastic. I think Pacific Rim should have been that. And I don't want to say that because I think the live action stuff and the attention to detail, the shuddering of all the metal parts when like the the, uh, Gypsy Danger smashes its hands together. And you see that reverberating. So much thought has gone into how glass moves when the earth shakes beneath it. Mm, yeah. It's it's really, really phenomenal 
live action visual creativity. And that's Del Toro to play. You mentioned earlier, Tim, about the idea that Del Toro wants to live in these worlds for a while. And you're entirely right. If you think about the Samuel fight in um, Hellboy, starts in the museum, goes into the street, goes into the subway. He likes progressing it through, not just a mm. um, Michael Bay star like, okay, we're on a freeway, now we're in the woods. It's like, well, hang, what, what the fuck is happening here? Yeah. <laughs> you can follow it. <laughs> And it's like we started on the. It, it the, gives you the, a sense of geography and yeah, we started the place in the within in the that pier, world, yeah, and the, on the harbour, sorry, the actual seafront, as it were, and we're going to end up in the sky. It's like, how do we get there? Don't worry, I'll fucking take you by the hand and mm. show you. It's like cool, and a lot of the camera, most of the time, it seems to make sense. It seems almost in a way that fairly grounded. It doesn't move like it isn't in a helicopter or it isn't on a drone or it isn't on yeah. the ground like Gareth Edwards' Godzilla film. Whereas, and we'll get to the sequel. That one's like. Just fucking spin it around, which is also the problem that The Hobbit had. But anyway, a lot of films in this era had that sort of problem issue. Yeah, I mean, I think Pacific Rim is this incredible balancing act. And and we, I was saying before we started recording about how so much of what I think makes it great is kind of intangible. And it's 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 the, the old saying about pornography. I don't know the definition, but I know it when I see it. Um, yeah. Uh, yeah. And... The, the first Pacific Rim has this amazing, because like we say, it's so well realised, so much of the visual effects, both the, in terms of like production design, like actual model and like real prosthetic created, you know, creatures and, and set design and stuff like that, as mm-hmm. well as the digital elements feel incredibly real and are very well thought out and you know you look at the kaiju and they they have these organic textures to them that look amazing and stuff like that but it also has this slightly heightened element of reality that makes it feel a slight remove that does make it feel kind of like a live action cartoon um and that you can have these certain moments and it's and and it's so hard to for me to kind of pinpoint like these mm. are the moments i think of stuff like make her more like introduction where mm. she's marching out in the rain with the umbrella that's yeah it's a gorgeous shot and mm. it, and i think it's it's a combination of kind of like cinematography and how del toro frames stuff and mm-hmm. it just makes it feel a little bit kind of too mythic to be real yes while you still have all these elements that are grounding you and making it have a verisimilitude to it and the second one doesn't have that and so everything feels kind of artificial there's a lot less actual concrete set design in it everyone's using like holograms and shit rather than Mm. pressing buttons Um, and it's so hard to kind of define and it's so hard to put your finger on what makes those differences Mm. but that is the kind of thing that for me is it it sets the first one apart from the second one and it means the second one feels so cartoony there's there's kind of no there's no real emotional component to it or it doesn't manage to sell the emotional component to it the world doesn't feel as well realized it 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 all feels just like a saturday morning cartoon yeah i i I fully agree tim i fully agree that there is it is it almost indescribable difference between the two of them and it does come down to a few things now in the past people who aren't really familiar with film have said i don't get it why do you all bang about roger deacon so much and it's like well and then you just show them pictures you show them images mm. you said this is a good shot it's like yeah i like it but why is it good why is it different than this for example you go okay okay um and then you're like well why is wally fister's stuff when he was working with chris nolan different to the new chris nolan stuff because it's a different favoring different lighting different lenses and that kind of different camera movements and you're like yeah, but can you describe it to someone who doesn't understand cinema? 
And that's like trying to describe a Pacific Rim, basically. It's like, yeah. what's the difference between the two? They both got <laughs> smashy robots. It, I don't see the problem here. And that's, yeah. well, which is why, not really spoilers for anything, but they had a similar budget. They had a similar box office. Mm. And yet one is pretty much kind of reviled and the other one isn't. You're like, I mean, I can see why, but it's very hard to describe to people why. Because mm. uh, again, it's like, it's like, why is Roger Deakins so good? It's like, well, if it, and someone interviewed him once, and this is a, I can't remember what it was for exactly, but they were interviewing Roger Deakins and he was talking about what he, you know, what makes him special? What's, what does he see that others don't? He said, okay, well, you've, you've sat that camera up and done X, Y, Z with it to film me for this interview. Just turn it off a second. The camera cuts back on and it looks fucking amazing. <laughs> and he says, there you go. That's the difference. And it's just like, what did you do? What did you do when the camera's <laughs> off? And similarly, Scorsese, when he was talking about Kira Kurosawa, said he shot seven samurai with three cameras. You've got three cameras in this room and they're all pointing at me. I mean... Uh, there's a really great conversation uh, between John Mulaney and Bill Hader. Oh, yeah. Nominally talking about uh, the HBO series Barry that, that Bill Hader co-created, stars in, writes, yeah. directs, lots of stuff. But they're, they're, they're discussing their time back at Saturday Night Live and how they there was like a, a, a lighting technician guy who was like in his 90s there mm. who was just like, they, they sort of describe him like a ghost. Like they'd, you know, you'd, they'd be rehearsing sketches and stuff and he'd just kind of like walk straight through the middle of them and just like change one gel thing and then everyone would go, Oh yeah, that's a lot better. Like it's, <laughs> it's these people who just know their craft so well, yes, and yes. and it can be tiny little things like that, and you're mm -hmm. just like, oh man, it just makes the whole thing so much yeah. better. <laughs> and that's why Del Toro is important to this because if you see him on set creating these giant gimbals and doing all this practical stuff, he knows what works in camera, what works in CGI. He has an understanding of it. He makes it uh, makes it real, as it were, and his dedication from the ground up. I'm not saying that's not as present necessarily through Stephen S. DeKnight, because he's mm. a perfectly credible director. There's nothing necessarily wrong with him as a director. It's just a different kind of director. The yeah. studio would have brought him on for very different reasons. I mean, I mean, notably, it's his first feature film, I believe. It's his, it's his only feature film, yeah. Yeah, yeah. he's he's he kind of came up he's as a, a TV writer guy. through, yeah, uh, like Buffy and Angel. Yeah, he, he, so yeah, I was, he directed some Daredevil, I believe. Yes, feature film is his only his only feature. Yeah, film. sorry, yes, 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 yes. Um, he's he's written he like as you said he wrote a few episodes of Buffy, then he wrote and directed Angel, did some Smallville, did some mm. Dollhouse, uh, wrote some of the Spartacus TV show, mm. uh, wrote and directed some Daredevil, and is working on the Mark Millar based comic thing, mm. uh, Jupiter's Legacy, which is coming out next oh, year. Oh yeah, so he's he's I think he's the showrunner for that. So he's got a lot of TV experience and. I don't know if that necessarily says like, oh, you can tell, but <laughs> I can. Tell. I almost. Yeah. I, I was gonna say, yeah, I, I'm not necessarily because he's a TV guy, but like the fact that he's an inexperienced feature film director, I think you can notice that. And if I can notice that, as as you guys are saying, like, I'm the opposite of that 90 year old guy on SNL, or <laughs> I don't know what the, how the fuck lighting works or any of that stuff happens. I am the guy saying, oh, Roger Deakins, yeah, he's great, because it looks nice. Yeah. don't know why. Can't explain why. I don't know how any of that works. I have almost no filmmaking knowledge whatsoever. <laughs> and even I can tell that as much as Denight can be great for TV, and he's done some fantastic episodes, he's written some fantastic episodes, he's directed some fantastic episodes of TV, it just doesn't hold up to 
del toro's work in the first one it's as simple as that for me and as you said it's little things like how the camera moves and stuff that you don't notice until you notice it Mm -hmm. and and Mm -hmm. it's the classic adage and i know i always i I understand video games a lot more than i understand filmmaking so i always relate things to video games like you don't notice a camera in a video game until it's bad (laughs) <laughs> and you go oh it's so frustrating i couldn't i couldn't make that jump or i couldn't shoot that enemy because the fucking camera couldn't get around the corner yeah. quick enough or whatever whereas a good camera in a video game you don't comment on it because it's invisible because it just works and you see everything you need to see and everything it just happens how it should happen and i i often have the same way i don't appreciate a lot of good stuff in films until i see a bad example i'm like mm oh that's how that's not supposed Mm. to look and (laughs) the perfect example is the lot of spinning thing like Uh, oh here's a a big thing uh, and we'll go around the foot of it and then basically like do little loops around its thigh and then all the way up (laughs) to the like when the when the giant jaegers start showing mm. up the uh kind of like the police force the the core whatever they're called Mm. pacific police core or whatever they're called (laughs) um they pop up and you get the scale from Scrapper, the little thing, and then the little one. So, oh, it's a one-person rig. And you're like, oh, how big is this thing? And you see it running along. Like, okay, that's like Transformers size, sure. <laughs> and then this foot comes down. I'm like, okay, that's a really cool sense of scale there, like what you're dealing with. Mm. This is built by a teenager, Jaeger, and then this is a serious fucking Jaeger. And then the camera just keeps... I mean, not to relate it too much to Transformers, but it reminded me of Transformers. The yes, way it, it runs, the yeah. way it moves, the way the camera tracks along with it, the way it just smashes through everything. Just <laughs> yeah. like, I mean, not again. Nothing is I know I'm. Though. I know I'm doing. I'm hitting a lot of my my take a drink kind of references here, but it's Man of Steel. Like, are there <laughs> are there members of the public around? Is when she's piloting her little mech around and it's just literally cascading through buildings, some of them very clearly abandoned. And he's and um, Boyega's character, very uh, Jake, very specifically says like, "Yeah, we're living in the outskirts and we're outlaws in the middle of nowhere and there's nobody here." And you see like mm-hmm. giant kaiju skeletons and all this kind of stuff. They're in the cities a couple of times. You're like. Did you just pick up a bunch of cars? <laughs> well, it's like, it's probably like, people in those it's the cars. It's line of, everybody's in the bunkers, right? It's like, oh. Do... <laughs> exactly, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Solved, and, they, and they did that thing in uh, Justice League where it's like, hey, Superman, save all the people. And he's like, will do. <laughs> Don't worry, I'm saving all the civilians and the civilians are all fine. Right, Wonder Woman? Right, Superman, save all the civilians. They Whereas in Man and, of Steel, um... it's like, we smashed all the buildings and then... I, I had said his words out loud again. Zack Snyder said, "Like, yeah, there's like, there's like 200 people, maybe." I'm like, what? It's like <laughs> fucking New York. What yeah. are you talking about? And I feel the same way in this one. They just, they just don't kind of mention. Oh, by the way, just moving these robots kills like thousands of people. <laughs> like, okay, maybe don't then. <laughs> are you the good guys? We're gonna I don't drop know. Them. We're gonna drop it five feet in front of a press delegate, wherever the fuck is. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Up to protesters. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, it, the first film obviously has a lot of collateral damage in it because it's giant robots fighting giant monsters. Um, and that's, you know, that's kind of the point is, you know, they say they call them Jaeger's monsters. We and, build monsters of our own to fight back. Yeah, and it's the yeah. thing of like, yeah, sometimes to save the world, you're going to have to build a thing that is incredibly destructive to the area that's surrounding it. But they I'm also fire take... Fire with the, fire kind of thing. <laughs> yeah, they, ta- they take the time to 
show you some of the like evacuation procedures and you you go down with Charlie Day into the shelter and stuff like that during the attack which Uprising doesn't have any of and has a lot more of the Jaegers using the buildings as weapons yeah um yeah. and and just doing stuff like there was a moment in it where the sort of nin- ninja-ish Jaeger yes. gets its swords out as it's getting ready to fight <laughs> yeah. one of them and cuts through a couple of buildings and it's like there was no need for that. You could have fuck your insurance clause. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, and you know, th- this was this was my biggest problem with Uprising is that the the f- first Pacific Rim is set in a very specific world, and it's a world mm. that has been under the attack by these kaiju for a long time, and they they have these procedures in place. It's it very deliberately sets itself up so that you can have a situation where big robots fight big monsters in a city. And it's mm. kind of fine. Uprising is 10 years later when there's been no kaiju attacks for 10 years. So the cities have rebuilt. The, pe- the people aren't all drilled. You know, it's it's kind of like the difference between uh, an earthquake happening in Tokyo and happening in London. You know, it's kind of... Panic, yeah. They're, they're used to it. They're, they have the drills. You know, they know what they, to do. They literally situations. build their buildings so they can withstand that kind of exactly, stuff. They know exactly. How, yeah, exactly. Yeah. There is absolutely no reason... At the end of Pacific Rim, there are no Jaegers left. All the Jaegers have been destroyed in the process of killing the Kaiju. Mm. Why the fuck would you rebuild a load of Jaegers when their sole purpose, the only thing that they could legitimately be used for, is fighting Kaiju? Well, like They address this in the film, mm. but very badly, where it's like... We knew they were going to come back. I'm like, <laughs> right, yeah, you, sure. You can do a lot with regards to like the geopolitical situation we're just talking about, which they kind of sort of do with the with the with the opening with the spec. Just police, and you're like, is that like a Pat Labor kind of thing or Pat Labor kind of thing? We like, which is another anime. Sorry, that's anime. By yeah. Way. yeah. Um, which is the idea that just like, what are these for now? Well, they're smaller and they're for like you know police. It's like, do we trust the police? <laughs> that's a different story. Yeah, if they if they'd have been smaller, then you can you can go like, oh, that's a reasonable idea because mm-hmm. that. But, you know, it, it kind of in the very first action scene where you have the one person scrapper Jaeger that Amara's made, yes. like, which is kind of a, a reasonable, in quotation marks, size for a person to fight. <laughs> and sure. then it's and then it's fighting the actual proper sized Jaeger. And like there's lots of moments where the little one is able to evade the big one because the big one is just so huge. And it's yeah. like it's the equivalent of like a giant tank trying to chase down a shoplifter like in a <laughs> store you know it's like yeah, the, the yeah. amount of collapse hey, hey, you're, that- you're smashing all the windows and you've killed a couple of civilians like i caught him though yeah he, he, he nicked some cds i've got him which ultimately is very 2020 it's like <laughs> what what possible crime could you be fighting that would justify a police jaeger mm-hmm. like and they do seem to be just wandering about i guess yeah uh, and that, very clearly, very clearly, smashing things. It's because like they're, they're four hundred feet tall, and there's there's so much money in this film, like being pumped into them. They're like they're coming up with these new systems. They're building all these new drone piloted ones, and it's like, what are these for? Like, and Bert Dorman's character Gottlieb, he, he mentions like, oh, the 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 money is often drying up, and oh, we don't have <laughs> enough. I, they can't fund my research. I'm like, stop building police robots <laughs> <Yeah>. then. <laughs> These, like, one of those 
probably is like one of the most expensive machines built in the history yeah. of humanity. Like if you think about it in terms of like space telescopes and like the large hadron colliders that cost like billions of dollars or millions of dollars to make, to make a functioning like 400 foot tall cop robot, yeah, it mm. must be unbearably expensive and they're just like yeah we'll just churn them out it'll be fine you're like you you what? look at like military jets that cost like yeah. billions of dollars and that's just exactly. for one person to sit in and mm-hmm. like you know it's the size of you know a large car or whatever and these things are building so like yeah it, the the fact that they were just like oh yeah the world just carried on making all these giant robots without any real justification like especially when in Pacific Rim they set it up that there was already like it was a dying project at the time and mm, mm. and there was more funding being put into like build just building a big wall you know uh, yeah that that completely as uh, as i was watching i was just like okay that you know a lot of this is just fun you know throwaway action but let let's get back to why this is happening what <laughs> what the fuck is happening with it anyway it's see i feel that you can explain these things but as i'm about to sort of sort of circle back to, there is one reason that they don't. I'm not defending it, I'm hopefully just trying to explain it. Now, a real world comparison for you, America dropped two atom bombs in the 40s, and you think, well, that's the end of that war, Uh, I guess we don't need more atom bombs. Wrong. 80s, there were (laughs) 70,000 of the fuckers, and you're like, yeah, because that breeds paranoia, and it's like, we don't actually go to war a lot in the way we did in World War II, but we have a spending budget. Literally every country's, like, you know, military spending is just, if you actually put out, like, the actual quantity, it's, I'm not getting too political this stuff, because, you know, the military, but at the same time, the the spending is huge in what is supposedly peacetime. Uh, It is always fascinating in that regard. So the idea that, you know, it's like, why are you still building, why are you building these for? You can definitely do something with that, but they didn't now there's a That's reason the thing. I think they don't and uh, you can you can find ways to justify around a few of the the weird little inconsistencies with the film or the, or the leaps that it takes from mm. the first one to the second one but they make almost no effort to explain any of that shit and just have John Boyega do his little intro piece yeah, and yeah. like and now you're caught up and I'm living in a mansion that's half covered by a giant skeleton Get see me you later by crunch <laughs> <laughs> yeah i'm tra- i'm trading a car for some tabasco and you're like Right, so cars don't exist anymore? What world are you living in? What is happening? But there is a definite reason. I think there is a very clear reason for this. Now, if I was being reductive, I would say it's because of the director. Because it is. But the truth is, it's more than that. Um, Because even if you have the same writers, Del Toro brings a lot of Del Toro to a production. It's unavoidable. Del Toro made Pacific Rim effectively for people like him. If kids... Teenagers, who the fuck ever enjoyed it? Nerds. (laughs) If they enjoyed it, great. But it wasn't made necessarily for them. It was dark and neon and cool. Didn't speak down to anyone. It was very childish in its madness of it all, but it was a cartoon. Fine. The Knight didn't do that. He made it bright, colourful. The camera moves around a lot. He shot like a fucking Power Rangers fight sequence. He shot like Saturday morning tokusatsu kind of style. You know, oh, we're in our morphin suits. Go, go, go. That's what he shot like. And there's nothing necessarily inherently wrong with that. It just doesn't gel well with what we already know that universe to be. Now, again, 10 years on, yes, okay, it may change. Now everything's a fucking hologram rather than a tactile object. Because, again, if you look at the the aesthetic of 1944, let's see the aesthetic of 1954, it's fundamentally quite different. I mean, mm. there's, there's a lot of, you know, artistic style and, and progression. 
So you can say, oh, I can see the the, the world here, mm. but not the same way. Or if you take making it 20 years, it's a bit easier 20 years. So yeah, I, I get that kind of stuff. Now, to, to excerpt from my review for Pacific Rim Uprising, I'd like to highlight two little quotes, if you don't mind. The first is the final comment, the, the in a few words summation, which is, a perfectly capable release, but one which lacks the magic that made the first the passable affair that it was. So, as Tim said, it's the whole, you can't really say why, <laughs> that's why I put the magic, mm. but it's like, something isn't right here. Mm. And my more yeah. in-depth final uh, final paragraph of the review itself, my closing statement of work is, it's just basically along like a list. The pacing is reasonable. It doesn't outstay its welcome. It doesn't take itself too seriously. The action is clear and entertaining. The characters are concise and understandable, even if stupid. Having arcs and history and the world lives and breathes as both a recognisable and credible one, to a degree, giving plausibility and weight to the more fantastical components, arguably. In essence, this film was a spectacle piece. Little more. If you are happy taking it at that value, you will probably enjoy it for what it is. So again, if you're going into expecting another Del Toro film, you will be, as most people were, fucking disappointed. Mm. If you want to go in to see a load of robots smash each other and say you're a fucking, like you're a 12-year-old boy, I would have loved the fucking shit out of this movie. <laughs> it would have been spectacular because I wouldn't have cared because there were more robots and one had a hand that was like a cool mace thing and one had like this <laughs> gravity whip. That was awesome. The difference was Pacific Rim wasn't selling toys to kids. It was selling collectible merchandise and figures to adults. At least that's how it's felt. It wasn't, it's, it's a strange thing to describe. It made it grounded and realistic in a way that it wasn't actually realistic at all because it was nonsense. Mm, yeah. But it knew its audience. The Knight doesn't know the audience. It knows the audience that Paramount wanted to go after. Mm. Or it's Universal. Universal, sorry, not Paramount. It, you know, get us some fucking toy market. Oh, okay. So kids, yes. Also, can you kind of, can you get the Chinese on board? Because they kind of loved... Pacific Rim didn't do, didn't do great in the States. It did good in China. It's like, okay, fine. We'll include some Chinese characters. That seems to be how they tend to do this for some reason. Just like sling some Chinese characters in a point of actual importance. Make them the hero sometimes. And it's like, that's quite, that's quite insulting, isn't it? It's like, nope, apparently it isn't. So I genuinely feel a lot of it falls at tonight's feet. But not necessarily in a negative way. Just in the fact that these two films feel like they're set in alternate universes. Yeah. They do. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I think, I think it's... It is. It's. It's kind of odd that they decided to make one without Del Toro, and you know he's obviously he's an incredibly busy guy who mm. has thousands of projects that have you know been in development at, at various different points. But yeah. most of them in development hell. Let's be honest. <laughs> Very true. Was he? Was he? Uh, was he uh, hobbiting at this point, or trying to hobbit? Uh, I would have thought this. No, this would be about Shape of Water time, wouldn't it? I mean, yes. Oh, because 2018. It's 2018. Yeah, it's Shape yes, of Water. Right. Sorry. Yeah. yeah. Uh, for the first one, he had been working on the Mountains of Madness. That's, he started. He yes. started off with a very Lovecraftian idea for it, and he was coming up with like creature designs that were very Lovecraftian, which then drifted off into I think Knifehead was one of the first ones he came up with. Yeah. With one of the producers, I can't remember who it is. Um, and then yeah, worked on like oh, it's kind of like a Hellboy monster, and then it came a Lovecraftian monster, then it became a kaiju, and then he split it off into this other thing, and mm. then blah 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 blah. And I was like yeah. But I, th I think the thing is, is that every Del Toro film feels so personal to him. Yes, I agree. And the idea that you can then take that away from him 
and go, okay, but we want to rejig it. And now it becomes this, this kind of corporate thing that we want to turn it into something that can be cross market demographic, you know, with international mm-hmm. sales potential. We're going to give it to a journeyman director who doesn't really have the, doesn't have the, the personal connection to it doesn't because there's there's very little emotion mm. to the story you know uh, in uprising it's it's a lot more in in a, in a way it's a lot more complex plot wise there's a there's kind of more going on there the yeah. first film is literally just like there's monsters and then we then we fight them yeah and then we find out the thing that we needed to find out so that we can actually attack where they're coming from. Mm-hmm. Whereas the, the second film has like betrayals and, you know, there's this kind of mystery element mm. in there that are more advanced, and but a it doesn't. Sexy brain in a jar. And yeah. Well, I, it... I would be, if I may have a bold statement, if you don't mind. Not a hot take, but a bold statement. I, I do mind, Matthew. I do mind. And prepare yourself. Prepare your pants. Oh, oh my God. Pacific Rim is kind of a bit like Attack of the Clones. You um, what, son? <laughs> Now, them's fighting words. Let Duncan. me explain myself. I gave Pacific Rim, just to clarify, a two out of five. I would say, and by the way, the reason it's two out of five is because a lot of it is still really good. The visuals are still very good. I mean, yeah, okay, they're I not. You as... gave it three out of five. No, sorry, Pacific Rim three out of five. Pacific Rim Uprising two out of five. Ah, right, okay. Yeah, sorry, okay. My apologies. Right, um, uh, but Attack of the Clones is different. But the, the, what I'm trying to refer to specifically is that it's pioneering visual effects, arguably, doing a good job at the time, and then horrific uh, the, you know, as the years go on. The camera is doing weird shit. There we go. The acting is, oh, you brought this person in. That's an interesting choice. And everything is being spoken about in the past tense. Um, it's like, oh, do you remember that time we did this? Yeah, we we did this. Are you the guy who did that? Yeah, I'm the guy who did that. In the same way, Star Wars would always talk about past events rather than showing you current stuff. And then you get a big action sequence, which is kind of cool and referring to something, but it feels like it's like, who is this for? Oh, it's to make the kids happy. It's like, oh, uh, yeah, okay, I kind of see that. And then you'd have intrigue and misdirect and, you know, emotional betrayals, but they wouldn't land because the person you gave that emotional betrayal to didn't fit. So, for example, the, the sort of weird emotional betrayal in, in Attack of the Clones is like, well, who who's the betrayer here? I don't realize, it. is it Dooku? I guess. is it? It's not Anakin yet, but it's kind of getting there. I'm confused. Uh, and this one is like, oh, it's Charlie Day's character. And you're like, yeah. And it's like, that's a lot of pressure to put on him because his character is so wacky and all over the shop mm. and frenetic and hyperactive, which is fantastic because that's obviously the actor's performance. It's really fun in the first mm. one because of it. But he only has really an emotional connection with one other character who this film mostly sidelines. And so they're like, okay, but we all, the audience like that guy. And we like his, oh, I gotta say, you like that sort of shit because it's, it's memorable. And that's all good until he has to be a bad guy. And I always maintain comedians make the best bad guys with the right script and with the right (laughs) hero against them. And Boyega's a fantastic actor. Scott Eastwood is an actor. And um, (laughs) Scott Eastwood is present. Scott Scott Eastwood is also in this film. (laughs) And they're not given much, but everything is in the past tense. Everything is previous clash and the fucking mm. kids train don't we stop the fuck again like shift the focus we need children and i'm i'm no oh, the fucking cadets i'm an anime person that feels like a fucking anime decision getting the robot yeah. shinji that feels like but but it's not it, yeah it doesn't work it feels it like made me think of um, I don't know, the, the anime bokurano oh yeah where yeah. they 
slight spoiler. I mean, it's the end of the first episode. <laughs> Spoilers for Boko Rano, where it's a bunch of kids who are forced into a mech to fight a giant monster. And then every time they do that, one of them dies yeah. randomly. Whoever pilots the mech dies. And they're like, okay, so... Get in the mech. Who's, who, it's get in the mech, Shinji, but you get in the mech and when you come out, you will die kind of thing. Mm-hmm. And I, I thought they were going to go darker and go for something where they were going to talk i don't know maybe like child soldiers or this kind of thing and instead it's just like yeehaw we've got we've got pilots you're damn right we've got pilots and i'm like no you haven't (laughs) specifically oh fuck they're talking about the teenagers the teenagers we've spent or what like 14 seconds learning about (laughs) Mm -hmm. there's the chinese guy there's the sexually ambiguous one there's the angry russian and that's a lot oh and amana's in there as well Mm -hmm. and then there's a and then there's kind of a bully type kid Mm -hmm. okay do they get any more nope nope that's it that's your lot just stereotypes archetypes and that's your lot it's like Am I supposed to care? Okay, <laughs> fine. Can we not just focus on, dare I say it, Scott Eastwood and other characters? Scott Eastwood, John Boyega, and their love interest, Jules. Right? The well-defined character, Jules. Well, I'm, I'm those two clearly <laughs> want to bang each other, right? Like, Jake and Nate clearly want to have sex, because they just keep, if God, they were damn, couple, you're handsome. That would make so much more sense. Oh, if they just kissed at the end, I'd be like, <laughs> I'd be yeah. like, oh, that's why you guys are angry. You had a breakup. Okay. <laughs> There, there's some weird like sexual tension between the two and i can't remember what review i was reading or watching they were talking about how he just keeps saying how handsome he is. oh it's tough being this beautiful man like you know with a face like this it's just <laughs> god damn that handsome bastard and his perfect jaw and you're like all right john chill out mate it's fine um that was uh jeremy johns on youtube who, who <laughs> kept talking about why is there so much sexual tension between these two characters that you don't pay off at all yeah, and then Jules kisses them both and then they're like mm-hmm. and they're like okay are we talking like polyamory here are we going to address <laughs> this and they're like nope and it feels like they could touch on and this is classic bad sequel stuff there's some really interesting stuff they could actually touch on and yeah. make it more interesting and more progressive and more diverse and and make it feel different from the first one in a good way and then they're just like get the kids to fight strap them in the mechs everything's going to be fine you're like ah. We don't need just a bunch of children's fighting monsters. Mm. We've seen that a million times where, wait, we have got an army. It's the people who have no training whatsoever and are suddenly <laughs> great at their job for no reason. Oh, fucking hell. <laughs> it just hits so many fucking tropes. I think that's my least favourite thing about this movie. Sure. It's all the cliches and tropes. And as you said, the first one gets away with it with the charm and the, the little sprinkle of magic that Del Toro has on it and stuff like that. This second one, because it doesn't have that sheen of polish, you just keep noticing all the fucking cliched bullshit one-liners and... Oh, they're doing that thing again. And oh, this could be interesting. No, they're just doing the typical movie thing again. Okay, great. Brilliant. How exciting. And I think to, to kind of tie into the, the the whole cadet stuff, there's one thing that really distinguishes Uprising from the original in a bad way. <laughs> in the first one, there's D- Del Toro made a kind of conscious effort to not have the Jaeger program feel too military. Yes, I remember reading this because he's a pacifist and yeah. he was very conscious about how it wasn't like military propaganda like how he feels michael bay films are or something like that oh yeah. yes, yes so like yeah. Idr- idris elba's character is 
military and he's the only one who you see in like a proper military uniform but that's Mm. very much like that is his style and that is his presence in that film and then the rest of it is is a very like everyone's these unique characters no one's in uniforms particularly like obviously Mm. they have the the jaeger suits that they wear but when they're not in those you know charlie hunnam's just wearing like a ratty old sweater kind of thing (laughs) um and it's pronounced uh, Raleigh old sweater. Yeah. Oh, fuck off. That's a pun. <laughs> and it's deliberately like a very, you know, the the whole effort is very international. You know, it's got Chinese and Russian and Australian sort of all yeah. grouping together to, to work on this effort. Uprising makes it feel a lot more military. It's, you know, it's cadet programs. There's a lot more uniformed people present, you know, commanding. There's a there's a sense of like, oh, no, these these are actually, you know, there's chain of command. And that makes them feel much more like child soldiers. Yeah. You, you know what it reminded me of? Ender's Game. Yes. 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 Yeah. Where they, again, they could have done something interesting and... Again, as rote as Ender's Game is at this point, as terrible as person as Orson Scott Card is, <laughs> you could have done something interesting there and had a twist and had a like, oh my god, the children are not prepared for war. Who whose idea was it to send these fucking teenagers in? And instead, it's just kind of like you fought good, kid. End of story. You're like, yeah. Okay. Could you not have explored like PTSD? The city. Or... <laughs> yeah. yeah, yeah, exactly. Piloting your giant robots and just smashing all these buildings. They could have done something really interesting. And as you said, Tim, I think Del Toro would have. I yeah. think he would have taken that and used that to maybe make a commentary on the mili- industrial military complex or something like that. Like something mm-hmm. interesting, mm. some kind of like, I don't know how we're, con- as you said, Matt, like the escalation of the Cold War and the nuclear mm. scare and all that kind of stuff. That could have been an interesting thing where it's just different countries building bigger and bigger Jaegers until, you know, they, they end up building the biggest, scariest Jaeger. Yeah, because none that, of that, that happens in the second one. There's just big Jaegers and there's no consequences. <laughs> Not to kind of uh, start sequelizing myself, but like if you're if you need to maintain a scenario where you can have giant robots fighting, like the sensible thing looking at this world is to go like, OK, well, they've taken care of the alien threat. Now they have all this advanced, you know, they have the technology for these Jaegers lying around extant. Maybe it would get taken up by the military. Maybe it would, you know, become this Cold War, you know, uh, mutually assured destruction thing of like every country's now, you know, they've stopped working together on, you know, the solution to this big world threatening problem. And they're focusing on building Mm. up their own Jaeger forces. and, And then you have like, you know, your scrappy uh civilian people who are like cobbling together their own little ones to you know be a resistance or whatever sure um but this this film does does not do that that it it just kind of waves its hands and goes no there's still you know this weird multicolored fighting force that the world's governments are all teaming up to pay for just to have well well this is the thing it's it's like if you took like for someone gunpoint you tell me right now why do these robots exist in this universe? And you know the answer is, so we can have them in the end fight. Yeah. <laughs> That's it. That's all there is. That's, they're yeah. there so they can fight at the end of the movie. That yeah. is it. It's it's not world building. It's not story based. It's not really anything motivation other than we need an action beat. It needs to be bigger than the last one. It needs to be more action in that regard. And we want to see more robots doing cool shit like bouncing off buildings because the other ones are slow. I think I think that's the thing is that the first Pacific Rim obviously don't know Del Toro's creative process, but, sure. but at a certain point he was like, I want to see. I think I was giant- pretty clear that it was on the back of napkins. <laughs> yes, yeah. <laughs> 
He was at home watching an anime and say, I want to do this. I want to always read a comic. I want to do this. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, it's at a certain point he decided, I want to make a film where giant robots fight monsters. Mm. And then, and then all the world building stems from that objective. I, I can't remember where I heard this story, but it was someone talking about the DC superhero Hawkman oh. and saying, the only things that Hawkman can do is fly and hit things with a mace. So writing stories for him is really easy. You just have to only give him problems that can be solved by flying or hitting things with a mace. And so like, <laughs> it's like this film wants to have giant robots fight monsters. And so it creates a world where that is is like the natural... Con- yep. like that. It, everything points towards that. And so, you know, it, it, it all makes sense. There's, um, it's like in, I think it's Gundam, where there's, they, they invent a particle mm. that mm-hmm. has a very specific effect that means that suddenly having mech suits makes a lot of sense to fight your wars kind of thing. May I jump in, Tim? Yes, please. You're talking about the Minovsky particle. That is right, yes. Yes, the idea that mech suits are actually a thing that is functioning. You can use ships, but in order to do stuff, the Gundam unit, why it looks like a person, is for a specific reason, reason, sorry, because they disrupt low-level electromagnetic radiation or whatever, such as radio waves and things. So it's designed as a purpose, and then later is manufacture for Warren and yada yes. and the Gundams are a separate thing but yes yes but yes they they came up with a particle to justify yes. why they had giant mech suits to fight yes and uprising kind of doesn't do that work it doesn't doesn't come up with a world that supports its stated objective that to me is its fundamental flaw although it has many others yeah i i think pacific rim has issues Pacific Rim Uprising has a lot of flaws. I think there's a very distinct difference. You can say, ah, Pacific Rim, I didn't enjoy it, it's not for me. But you can't say it isn't a stunning creation in of its own right. Pacific Rim Uprising, you can't say it's boring because it's it's arguably entertaining. It does its job mm. from start to end. It's, it's you know, it's a... If, 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 if a Power Rangers film site thing, and again, I'm using like a Saturday morning from the 90s kind of thing, if you were to sort of put that on, it would be spectacular, you know? If you could give that to a budget of a fucking Carmen Rider sort of style series in, in in Japan, that'd be that'd be astonishing. It'd be so cool. But it's not the same thing. And mm-hmm. subsequently, you can get fewer people to like it. And it doesn't have as much as I hate to say this. It doesn't have the the sex, the fucking toxic masculinity, the racism, and the shit that powers and or runs very much to the core of the Michael Bay movies. Which mm-hmm. means it doesn't have, unfortunately, the reflection of society mass appeal in the same way that Bumblebee didn't do nearly as well with the public because it was actually a really fucking good film. Whereas yeah. <laughs> Edge of Extinction last night, despite being pieces of shit, billion fucking dollars. But um, don't worry, we're going to fix it. Much like Jaeger's needing a ridiculous amount of funding, so does sequelizing. So our uh, first advert this week is with Stitcher Premium. You know them, you love them. You have to get to listen to some of your favourite shows ad-free with Stitcher Premium. You get access to Stitcher Originals, bonus episodes, comedy albums, you know all the drill. You can get that for $4.99 a month or $34.99 per year. Um, you just go to stitcher.com slash premium to sign up today and you can use the code SEQUELIZERS. S-E-Q-U-E-L-I-S-E-R-S. I almost forgot how to spell our own fucking name. And <laughs> Not, if you do No that, American Zs, no A's, no, 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 no. like Equalizer, no none of that shit. But if you do that, you get a month free on us. Uh, so you're very, very welcome. Additionally, much like John Boyega searching this this new world for scraps to survive on, like Cap'n Crunch, if only he could, I don't know, if there's a service that would bring food to him, like... 
Today's episode being presented by Purple Carrot. Yeah, Purple Carrot, you heard right. Purple Carrot is the plant-based subscription meal kit that makes it easy to cook irresistible meals to fuel your body or your Jaeger. Each week, choose from an expansive and delicious menu of dinners, lunches, breakfasts, and snacks. Every box is an opportunity and to learn and experience. Blood. <laughs> kaiju blood is the key ingredient in all of them. Every box is an opportunity to learn and experience something new and e- easy recipes and fresh pre-portioned ingredients. No shopping, no food waste, just globally inspired, restaurant-quality, plant-based meals. Um, which again, if you're facing an apocalypse universe, got to grow like vegetables and stuff, get on board. Uh, you can get $30 off your first box by going to purplecarrot.com and entering the code PODGO30. So that's P-O-D-G-O-3-0 at checkout. That's PODGO30 for $30 off your first purple carrot box. Purple carrot, the easiest way to eat more plants. We should, however, highlight that this only applies to contiguous US areas. If you're asking yourself, What's a contiguous US area? Well, allow me to explain. Uh, If you were a kaiju who made landfall in the middle of, say, I don't know, Ohio, but you could only go... If you wandered out of one of the Great Lakes. Yes, exactly. Yes, thank you. That's perfect. If you wander out of Lake Erie because of all the shit that's in there, um, you could only go to the US-bordered bits that touch that bit. You couldn't hop over to Alaska. You couldn't go to Puerto Rico. You couldn't go to Miami. or uh, you, could, you could go to Miami. You couldn't go to Hawaii. It's just the things within those United States landmass. So everyone else internationally, sorry, Purple Carrot is not for you yet. You could always send them an email saying, hey, I want some of that sweet goodness. And maybe they'll, uh, maybe they'll broaden their horizons. Expand their business. Open a rift, if you will. A breach under the sea. Very straightforward this week. There's only two Pacific Rim films. So we've only got two to pick out the scores for. Cool. So, gentlemen, as we always say, Rotten Tomatoes is a, an, an imperfect system, but <laughs> we love it because it is imperfect. Interestingly, I looked this up earlier today, and I have been quoting the categorization and statistics of the tomatometer incorrectly this whole time. A positive review is in fact not more than 50%. It is more than 60%. Ah. Yeah, 3 out of 5, yeah. So yeah, it's a 3 out of 5, and I have Mm. incorrectly said in previous episodes, if it's more than 50% or more than 5 out of 10 or more than 2.5 out of 5, however you want to categorise it, it counts as a positive review. I stand corrected. I did my research. I have checked. Tomatometer in fact verifies... Positive reviews as more than 6 out of 10 or 60% or 3 out of 5. Just to clarify that before we get any angry tweets or anything like that. <laughs> Let it always be known the sequelizers will double check, apologize, move on. I'm a, I'm a scientist. I'm always ready to change my opinion based on new evidence Precisely. and facts. Yeah. Yeah. Um, having said that, we also learned that the entire thing is broken. Because in the last fucking episode, there were reviews for things that were different films entirely. <laughs> they just slapped on that. So it's like, it's as, all literal As much bullshit, as I love you know diving what? into those reviews, that might Come be the best this. one I've ever found. That was like, God, this Broke fucking everything. newspaper from the middle of nowhere just reviewed this terrible <laughs> film and gave it a five out of five. How weird. And the best of all, no football. And I was like, what? <laughs> what the fuck is this? Um, but anyway... Pacific Rim and Pacific Rim Uprising. I'm I'm intrigued. I have I have a pretty clear idea. I feel. Yeah. Let's let's start with the original and the best. Well, my three out of five would be a positive. So technically speaking, hmm, I don't know. What do you think, Jack? <laughs> I I weird weirdly enough, I feel like 
your three out of five is roughly bang on for a Rotten Tomatoes score. I'm okay. thinking in the mid 60s because, as you said, p- people like Pacific Rim, but it's not a critics, it's no critical darling kind of film, is it? No, no, no. But it is Del Toro, which we've talked about before on this show. You know, we talked about Hellboy, we talked about a few other Del Toro things. We've brought him on for some of our pitches before as well. But uh, yeah, there's no way it's as high as the 80s or 90s. Not a chance in hell. Mm, there's no, no way it's as low as like 30, 40, something like that. I think mid 70s. Really? I'm going mid 60s. I, well, I want to go a bit generous. I will go 65 for Pacific Rim, please, Tim. Fuck it. I'll, I'll go 75 then. Okay. Because I think I think it's tricky because Del Toro is revered in certain circles. Mm. People say, well, Pan's Labyrinth. And they're like, yeah. Blade, who, as we've established, his lowest rated film, which is mind-boggling, but whatever. Not the point. Pacific Rim Uprising. Hmm. Again, I think you're along the right sort of lines with your two out of five. I think it might be, my guess would be high 30s or mid 40s would be my assumption. Because it's it's worse, but it's fine. And we've talked about this on the show plenty of times. Some of these sequels are a lot worse. Hmm. This sequel isn't that much worse because the first film isn't a masterpiece. We've had like masterpieces and then absolute pieces of dog shit. Sure. This is neither of those things. So I think there's probably, what, 20, 30% less. So I want to say I'll go, I'll go 35% positive for Pacific Rim Uprising, please, Tim. See, yeah, I I think it would be nearly as badly reviewed because although Del Toro is not on it, I think the people who thought this is a big dumb cartoon for kids will still think it's a big dumb dumb cartoon for kids. There'll be some disappointed people, but there won't be enough to sway the needle that much. I'm going to say bang on 50. Ooh, interesting. Which we know is a negative. (laughs) (laughs) Yes. As far as Rotten Tomatoes are concerned. Well, so far this season... We've had clean sweeps. It's nothing but clean sweeps oh, so far. It's bizarre. Do we, do we break the chain finally? Is it a tie? We have not broken the chain. Oh. But we got incredibly oh, close to oh, oh, shit. Here we go. This is exciting. So, Pacific Rim, the first. Yeah. Yes. I'm ready. Uh, Matt, you said 75. Jack, you said 65. Mm. 72%. Fuck. Fresh. Ooh. Okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, good. Yeah, I think that's about right. That sounds good. Yeah, with a, yeah. with a 77% audience score. See, you always think the audience will be higher, but that's... It's yeah. more, more or less in line with critics. Yeah, yeah, interesting. Pacific Rim Uprising. Matt, you said 50. Jack, you I said did. 35. One of you was in within seven points. One of you was within eight points. Oh, <laughs> fucking hell. 43. Wow. So just oh. goes to Matt. I should have gone for 45, not 35. 40. Damn it. Uh, and audience score of 38. So again, pretty close in terms uh, of... Uh, again, based on my own grading metric, I'm more with the audience, I think, in this case. Yeah. I think the, the critics were too too generous. But again, as I said in my own review, if you sign up for that and go, eh, fuck it, it'd be just some fun things smashing each other around, you'll enjoy this film. Yeah, it's competent. Yeah. I would. It I is. Would it genuinely, genuinely is. And the thing is, the CGI still looks pretty damn good. It's not mm. the same world-checking things, even though it's like, you know, five years later, but it's like, mm. yeah, looks all right. But anyway, let's fix that shit. It's my job. Yeah, we could we couldn't have a mech film and not give it to Matt. <laughs> Matt went bold. So Matt true. has no mechs in this movie. <laughs> they're driving around kaiju this time. Yep, they're piloting the kaiju by putting the hands up. I'm like fucking Henson puppets. <laughs> <laughs> no, uh, this is, is it like is, is it like mechs. Titans and Attack on Titan, where it's actually like flesh 
kaijus, the flesh mechs. Yes, crystalline things where yeah. it forms around you. Um, no, no, it's just robots in it. I do just, I, I, okay, I will discuss more why I've done things at the end because that's the best way to do this. Let's talk about some very interesting points I'm about to make that will make people very angry and upset potentially. Thing number one, I'm releasing this in 2016 because as we've established from our best year uh, breakdown, which was a, was that a Patreon exclusive? Was that interseason? That was Patreon exclusive, wasn't it? No, it wasn't. It was end of, end of season. End of season. It's very hard for us to discern sometimes what <laughs> patrons get and they don't get because we just record them all in equal footing. But but yes, my apologies. The end of the interseason content, we talked about best years. And I mentioned 2016 being a fucking amazing year for film. I'm going to make it much better by increasing a better fucking <laughs> Pacific Rim film. I think you can't release it in 2018 for a few reasons. One being that we're kind of transformed out at that point and uh, people don't really give much of a shit. And in 2016, there isn't a Transformers movie. Bumblebee came out in 2018, and it's fucking amazing. Mm. Um, 2017, you had Last Night, which is just all over the place. But 2016, it's a nice break. It's 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 not it's not up against another robot film, really. Not really mm. in that regard. Here's the big thing. Well, no, let's go with the little thing first. The little thing is I'm not calling it Pacific Rim Uprising. Good. I'm calling it Pacific Rim 2. That's fine. Interesting. It's uninspired, but sure. Yeah. I thought of tons of cool titles for this, and I thought... No, fuck it. Pacific Rim 2 is absolutely fine. <laughs> I don't have any reason to do colon, what the fuck ever. Just two. Because you want to know why? I want to do more of them. I want to do a lot more of them. I want to do all kinds of shit with them, as we'll find out later. Now, this where gets problematic. I am not bringing back Del Toro. After we just discussed how Del Toro is the most <laughs> important component, I am not bringing him back. And I'm not bringing him back for one reason only. El Toro busy. Yeah. <laughs> if I, as we've discussed in previous pitches, to include Del Toro means you lose a Del Toro film. 2016, he's not working immediately, I think, but he's working on other stuff in hell. And that gives him the inspiration to do other bits and pieces. I'm not going to be the person that says, oh, we don't get Shape of Water because I made him do another Pacific Rim film. I don't like Shape of Water, so feel free to do that. Nah, it needs it. We need it for the Oscars. We need it for the Oscars. We need that. Do we, we, need, we, need, we need, yeah, we need freak flags to fly. Yeah. We need the monster yeah. fucker representation. <laughs> Most definitely. So I needed somebody who had an amazing visual eye, an amazing um, understanding of practical effects, uh, a really good fucking cinematographer, and a Mexican man. Because <laughs> <laughs> I felt that <laughs> there's absolutely no connection there at all. It just happens to be a Mexican <laughs> person. <laughs> and I went for Alfonso Cuaron. Ah, interesting. So he has done Children, Children of, of Men. Men. Gravity, Gravity. Yeah, yeah. Nothing in nice. 2016 goes on to do Roma. And I'm like, this guy is brilliant. And I I'll like just point Quaron out, a lot. Yeah. Yeah. Quaron is, is a fantastic director. He also did arguably the best Harry Potter film, yeah. Harry Potter and the Prisoner of Azkaban. Agreed. He yeah. Yeah. isn't adverse to schlocky genre stuff and CGI and practical and all that kind of stuff, as well as grounded, as well as teen friendly, as well as pushing the boundaries of, again, you have to remember the, the Columbus films for the Harry Potter film, the first two are really fun. Oh, they're Christmas movies. Third one is like, right, these are for teenagers now. This is talking to the kids the way they want to be spoken to. This is more, this is darker. And then with the third one going on, fourth going on, same so forth. Yeah. Children, men, gravity. I feel like there's a lot of common ground between the darkest moments in Pacific Rim and the lighter moments in Children of Men could more or less be happening yeah. in the same world. Mm. It's just that... Yeah, yeah. Because Charlie film... Hunnam's in both of them. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> You're right, though. I, that, that's the thing. I think I think he understands that. And and the reason I mentioned about the whole Mexican thing is because I genuinely think that much of the same with Neil Blomkamp, if you come from a certain environment, you are exposed to different things and you bring that to the cinema. 
you bring a different perspective. And that sounds like a really obvious thing to say, but Hollywood doesn't seem to get that sometimes. Like, who have you got on to direct this film? Oh, a guy who grew up in LA. Okay, so he's already he's always been part of the industry, effectively. Well, no, not really. Yes, really. His whole life has been here in this town. Whereas if you're someone who has um, experience of life and different things, I mean, again, Del Toro lives in self-imposed exile. He can't go back to Mexico because of all the kidnappings and stuff like that. There's, there's yeah, so many reasons the, he can't. We talked about it before, what happened with his yeah, family yeah, yeah. and his sister and all that kind of stuff. And, yeah. Precisely. So I'm not saying that that's the thing, but, but, but Quaron understands unrest. He understands necessity and things like that with like Children, Men and Roma. And there's like so much. And also he's an auteur. He does great stuff. And he has a powerful force of vision, shall we say. He knows what he wants to bring to screen. He can have that. And again, that, 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 that real long shot sort of stuff, that practicality, the, I think, and again, with, even with the CGI stuff and gravity, inventing almost new ways of doing stuff in the same way that uh, Del Toro had the suits all practically designed um, with like liquid gels in it for stabilizers and the gimbal for the cockpit, all that shit. You need someone of detail. And that for me is Quaron. So that's my compromise, everybody. If you don't like it, you can fuck off. Returning cast. Raleigh Beckett, Charlie Hunnam. We didn't even address this, did we? Where yep. the fuck is Riley in the second film? Yeah. <laughs> he's just... Ten just, years. He's just not mentioned. They go on else. about Idris Elba for like half an hour. And it's and it's not like Charlie Hunnam's like... Is he? Yeah, it's not like he's blown up in the... Well, Son, Sons of Anarchy had already finished by that point. He's working so. on seven or six uh, King Arthur films, wasn't he? Yeah. yeah, he was working on the King Arthur. <laughs> Genuinely, he would have been working on the King Arthur because that was 2017, yeah. wasn't it, I think? So. I think thereabouts, yeah, probably. Yeah. One of the worst films I've seen recently. That uh, was a terrible movie. I re- it was so boring. I watched so it on a flight back from Japan and fell asleep, and I don't regret falling asleep. <laughs> <laughs> We're bringing back Mako Mori, played by Brinko Kikuchi. Good. Nice. We're bringing back Nuke Geisler, played by Charlie Day. Mm-hmm. We're bringing back Herman Gottlieb, played by Bern Gorman. Why is he called Herman Gottlieb when he's so British? It's the, the most future. German name in the German world. German people living in England. I fucking love the names in Pacific Rim. And Me that, too. That, that was one of the things that I was like, Uprising just doesn't have the same spirit to it because they go from someone called Stacker to someone called Jack. Mm. Is it Jack or Jake? That's exactly the point. <laughs> I, I'm terrified of mine because I'm, I'm so worried Jake that my names aren't as good. I remember when it's a Jack. Yes. I put a mm. cross next to that list. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Right, okay. So new cat. I, I should point out, the returning cast don't do much. It's all about the new cast. Now, I have to do a thing, and I apologize in advance. I have to say a lot of stuff, and it's going to get very confusing, and I apologize so much for that. Hey, everybody. Welcome to every episode of Sequelizers. Matt talks <laughs> a lot of bollocks that nobody really understands <laughs> for like 15 minutes at a time. Go ahead, Matt. Specifically, I have to talk about pilots and the name of their Jaegers. Oh, be no. <laughs> have you invented yep. new weed strains? <laughs> That's a joke for the patrons right now. Right, here we go. New cast. Piloting the Jaeger Keen Hound, we have Oscar Keys, played by John Boyega. Ah, nice. So Good. not returning cast, but sort yeah. of returning cast. I see what you're doing. 2016, in between attack, well, obviously, done attack the block, Force Awakens. Then he goes on to do Detroit and Last Jedi after it. So it's in between Force Awakens and Last Jedi. Cool. There we go. Lovely. Piloting the Sangyo Prospect, which is a Korean Jaeger, mm. is Sang Yahoon and Sang Bom. They are related. Uh, sorry, this is the characters' names. They're related. The actors are Kim Okbin, uh, or Kim Okvin, technically, sometimes. It depends mm. on pronunciation. She was in Thirst and The Villainess, most famously, in between this movie. And also Park Sodam, who was in Scarlet Innocence and Throne. And most importantly, she was in Parasite. 
she plays the sister. She's the sister. Yeah. Yeah. And these two, we'll come back to their connection, but they are they are related. Hence the same surname, Sang. Um, piloting the Glory Atarangi, we have Ihaka and Kauri, played by Manu Bennett and Rob Kipper Williams. Manu Bennett is 30 Days a Night, The Hobbit. He also very prominently in Arrow. Yeah, I was going to say, uh, I know him from Arrow most of all. That's true, yeah. And is, and is also the orc dude in uh, yes. the not the Lord of the Rings, the Hobbit films. Yeah. Yes, that's right. I've told you, you know, everybody, lo- everybody loves that. You know, the, the big orc man who nobody gives a fuck about and nobody <laughs> remembers the name of. No, that's yeah. the Hobbit all over you, isn't it? Yeah. And the other guy is from Deadlands and the Meg. He's um, a lesser known, but the best um, Maori actors and things like that. So I, I wanted to include a different island nation. Because cool. again, if you were talking about the Pacific Rim, I think, well, we should have more islanders in this. The big um, Pacific Islands. Yeah, that makes sense. Yeah. We also have piloting the Kasai Omega, Nilima and Kiara. Um, this is played by Frida Pinto, who's done Slumdog Millionaire. Nice. Rise of the Planet of the Apes, Immortals. Then she does our film, hopefully. Goes on to be a Mowgli, which is a piece of shit. Um, <laughs> and Indira Farmer, who was in Basic Instinct 2, uh, Exodus Gods and Kings, yeah. and Official Secrets. She's a British actress. Then we have... So they're representing... Uh, India. Like India? Yeah, right. That's right. correct, yeah. Yep. India. Then we have Forebus Oraculi. <laughs> <laughs> now we're talking. Yeah. These are some Pacific Rim-ass names, Matthew. Yeah. I appreciate Forebus it. Oraculi, played by Jason Isaacs. Because oh, I fucking love Jason Star Isaacs. Star Trek Discovery's Jason Isaacs. Yeah. <laughs> Harry Potter, Fury, Cure for Wellness. Then he goes on to do Death of Stalin, Hotel Mumbai... Tons of TV stuff. He's a fucking Jason gem, man. Brilliant. Love me some Jason Son of Irving. Liverpool, man. Genius. And finally, Julian Novak, played by Jesse Plemons. God, I love Jesse Plemons oh. so much. He's Everybody, a weird looking thing. dude, but he's I fucking brilliant. Meth Damon. Yeah, he, t- he was in Meth fucking Damon. Breaking Bad. Yeah. Then he's in like, the master, Bridge of Spies. He Black does Mirror. our film, hopefully. Exactly, Black Mirror. Thank you, yeah, very USS much. The Star Trek episode, yeah, yeah. yeah. Then he's in our film, hopefully. Then the post-game night, Vice, the Irishman. He is... A bit of a weird darling. He's this just weird Texan who everyone wants in their films. So I thought he's not going to be that good. It turns out he's a fucking amazing actor. Mm. You're like he's one of those weird character actors. I don't you like him. I do because he's not a character actor that like disappears and you don't notice him. You're like, oh, it's that guy every time because he has a yeah. giant fucking Matt Damon face. <laughs> <laughs> so there was a lot there. I apologize. I know everyone's already forgotten all the Jaegers, all the people. Don't worry about it. I tend to refer to them as groups rather than individuals. Maybe we'll produce a pilot of insert name of Mech here. A handout. All you need to know is all those new people are important. All the old people are also present. Multiple nationalities full of good actors playing characters. That's what we need. But as Tim said, why are they Jaegers? Let's let's fucking find out, shall we? (laughs) It's a sex thing. Um, (laughs) When is it not with you, Matt? Ho- horny, horny Matt is taken over. Horny Matt. Horny, horny Matt's always. Horny Matt is is the devil that whispers in Horny Tim's ears. <laughs> <laughs> horny Matt is horny for Mex. <laughs> Hashtag Horny for Mex. So, the film opens with the narration from Riley Beckett because, of course, it fucking does. Has to about, have a narration at the end. That's the rules. <laughs> yeah. About the breach being closed, a fighting kaiju for decades has left the global economy in tatters. The Earth's resources are limited after spending so much on walls and Jaeger production, and devastated cities are left to rot rather than the lengthy and expensive process of reconstruction, because I don't like that about uprising. Address is the thing we were just talking about, yeah. Yeah. That makes sense. With such a low standard for living, crime and disease are rife. Diseases such as COVID-19, I think. People just cough in each other's faces all the time. And then a mech comes in and says, nope, six feet, please. (laughs) (laughs) The joint world government, because I've decided they 
team up because of course they would. Um, the joint world government tasked Newt and Herman to open their own breach for dimensional travel to either find a new resource-rich world or uh, to mine or one suitable enough to live on. Interesting. Mm-hmm. So here we go. We're, why are they doing? Why they have mechs? To get the fuck out. This is basically Interstellar. <laughs> Wait <laughs> for the bookcase. Scene. Elon Musk's <laughs> biopic. Yes, it's it's going to be an. E- I wanted a, a thing for Quaron to get behind, and the message here is: we fucked the Earth. Try- but in this case, it was a good reason. It's like we're trying to defend it. It's like you defended it, but now it's unlivable. Mm. And at what cost? Okay. So now we need to get the fuck out of here fast. Yep. Go. I'm down. I'm intrigued. That's the universe. Let's go. Marco is in charge of the Shatter Dome. Fucking cool name. That's a good game. While Raleigh is lead trainer for new pilots, both effectively adopting Stacker Pentecost's legacy. While Newton and Herman argue about the ramifications and nuances of breach creation, Dr. Julian Novak is brought on by a separate division to develop artificial intelligence which would do away with Jaeger pilots and save time on the training process. Hinting at the drone things from Uprising. Okay, yeah, correct. Yeah, yeah. Raleigh is clearly unhappy with this decision and highlights the system's flaws when, in a simulation, it does not save a fellow unit. As Raleigh leaves, he calls over his shoulder, If that thing doesn't care if we live or die, how is it supposed to protect us? Raleigh returns to his own lab and continues his work with Dr. Oscar Keyes, pilot and tech specialist who has been using drift technology for people to cope with trauma but in the process refined the process to allow a small handful of individuals to solo pilot Jaegers, but the tech will take years to effectively refine. I apologise for process to process. <laughs> yeah, I, I did pause for that. I was like, yeah, that, is, that does make sense. Yeah, sorry, yeah. It's fine. Time jump to 2030. Oh, here we go. Five mm. years after the effects, uh, events of Pacific Rim. A disastrous earthquake due to desperate fracking leads to the escalation of the new breach programme, dubbed Last promise. A government official tours the Shatterdome, with Mako giving an overview of the new pilots and units. Sisters Sang Heon and Sang Bom are former associates of Hannibal Chow, pilot the Sang Eo Prospect. Nilima and Kiara developed unique gravity whip technology and pilot Kasai Omega. The biggest of the units is Glory Atarangi with its multi-adaptive lance slash spear slash scythe. <laughs> this is the most <laughs> anime shit, Matthew. <laughs> uh, and is piloted by Ihaka and Kaori. The final suit, Keen Hound, is an experimental solo-piloted Jaeger, piloted by Keys. The official is dismayed when he sees a full-on brawl between the pilots in the mess hall. Mako hauls them into a meeting room and scolds them on losing their composure hours before mankind's most important mission. So just very quickly, I didn't want them to be military, so most of them are scientists. Yeah, I know. That was kind this. of an Im- yeah, yeah. yeah. I wanted them either to be like also I like the idea in the original Pacific Rim, it's these just random people, or they just happen to be really drift compatible. It's like, yeah, we've got criminals, scientists, and all sorts here because that's why they're in that position, basically. Before the mission begins, the official explains he has little faith in the success of the mission under human supervision and has been working closely with Dr. Novak. At this point, a fifth Jaeger is flown in. The very sleek and futuristic looking Foribus Oraculi. <laughs> I know, I, I'm, by the way, I'm intentionally pronouncing that wrong. I'm doing that intentionally. <laughs> Piloted by artificial intelligence. Voiced by Jason Isaacs. Marco is furious, but this condition is non-negotiable. On a remote island off the coast of Japan, the breach is opened and the team of five venture through only for the portal to collapse. 
Novak loses contact with Freebus or Aculi, and Newt laughs hysterically before his head kicks back and he falls into a coma. Looking around the tundra they found themselves in, the Jaeger pilots realise they are cut off as the power to activate the rift must be drawn from both sides so it doesn't completely drain the Jaeger. Mm, interesting. Interesting. Consequences. Also done it, I've also done a bit of a Stargate. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> With no idea where to go, wandering around until they can formulate a plan, the group come across a large kaiju skeleton, easily a Category 5, which is the big motherfuckers, by the way, listeners, if you mm. aren't aware of your Pacific Rim categories of kaiju. It's easily like, like the size of a car. <laughs> easily as big well, as a fridge. But yeah, like a big fridge. Yeah. Okay. You ever seen one of those fridge. really big fridges? One of them, where it's like two freezers and then two fridges. Oh, oh you know, can you imagine? Category five wouldn't fit in a UK house. <laughs> one of those American fridges, category five. <laughs> Kiara hypothesizes this new world must be one that the alien precursor race had formerly terraformed to harvest for its resources, which they do talk about in the first film. Mm. Yes. Forobus takes a knee and is unresponsive for a few minutes, but before the team can address it, they are attacked by a snake-like kaiju with a sort of hammerhead shark skull called Crest Splitter. They have them, again, the naming conventions for kaiju are pretty fucking stupid and amazing as well. I appreciate Crest Splitter. These these were pretty tricky to come up with. (laughs) The battle is brutal with the team neither gelling nor communicating efficiently, often getting in the way of each other's attacks. This is where we see that Keen Hound's primary weapon is a cannon that draws material from around it and fires them, rather than expending ammunition. Much to their surprise, Forobus stays largely away, to the chagrin of the Sangs who feel that the team is going to get wiped out on its first mission. Seizing an opportunity, Nelima and Kiara share a thought across the drift and silently agree it is the best course of action. Activating the gravity whip... What's a gravity whip, Matt? Can you explain what a gravity whip is? Yes. Because it sounds fucking cool. Gravity whip is where you can um, whip gravity. Select a nearby section of land, or a building, or a mountain, or some shit, and it will extract, almost carve out part of that, and use it as a. I can't think of what the word is for an actual weapon, but let's see, or a a sling. That's what I'm looking for, a sling. Mm. So you can use that to fling it out. So effectively, it's a uh, a, what's a tractor beam that cuts shit out. Kind of like they use with the cars in the second one. Precisely, yeah, precisely that. Cool. Kasai Omega snares Crest Splitter and launches itself into the atmosphere. This is going to be one of those pictures where we just say a bunch of proper nouns that uh, Matt has <laughs> it's invented. Going to be unfortunately, so, it's inherent be, because it's be specific room. What was the other one we did then where it was just nothing but fucking proper nouns? I feel like it was one of mine where it was just like <laughs> yeah, this particular thing. Yeah, some sci-fi thing. Of course, it was. The radio waves are filled with chatter from the other pilots as Forobus simply looks on. Reaching the upper atmosphere with systems failing and the kaiju thrashing wildly, they hurl the beast into space, watching it crack up without the safety of the planet's atmosphere. As the mech falls back to the surface, they initiate a powerful scan, mapping the planet's surface for the others. Far from the site of the battle, the site of Kasai Omega burning up on re-entry is seen by a giant, scorpion-like kaiju. As night falls, the pilots power down their suits and recuperate, all except Forobus, who continues to run diagnostics and Keys, who drifts, sitting peacefully with his mother before she is shot. The respective pilots of Sangio Prospect and Glory Atarangi talk about the reasons they joined the programme. Forobus explains it has reviewed the mapping and learned of a precursor factory that could be used to summon the necessary fuel to activate the rift beams. 
Hayun and Bomb openly state that they do not trust the AI's intentions. Snapping out of his hallucinatory drift experience, Key's senses kick into life. Similarly, Forobus highlights that something is coming, and the pilots rush to their stations. The previously seen scorpion kaiju, Icarachni. Ice Rackney. Oh, Ice Rackney. Because it's on an ice planet. Fair enough. And Rackney is kind of a big spidery scorpion y thing, so it kind of makes sense, I guess. It's yeah. a Pacific Rim movie. Yeah. <laughs> ice Rackney charges towards the stationary mechs and dwarfs them, easily the largest creature they have ever encountered, which they're no match for. The joint efforts of Keen Hound and Forobus are enough to allow the other two suits to power up and deal some damage to one of its legs, but sensing they cannot win, they make a hasty getaway with the aid of Sangio Prospect's giant one-shot phosphorus flare. I want there to be, you know, like one-shot things. It's like, they're like, oh, we all have swords. No, you don't. <laughs> you have one-shot <laughs> things because you're a d- different type of uh, fighting stars. Uh, so back on Earth. Maka reports in to the world government official the time and money it will take to attempt a reconnaissance or rescue mission. Riley says he can retrofit the remains of Gypsy Danger, but one official condescendingly infers that the Pacific Defense Force have failed time and again, wasting countless billions. Marco suggests, much of a surprise of Raleigh, that the only option at this point may be for a planet-wide change of priorities. Another official with clear stakes in energy production argues this is simply not feasible, and they must have access to new resources to maintain growth, no matter the cost. Marco believes this to be arrogant, fueled by greed, and no better than the actions of the precursor race before terminating the call. Mm-hmm. Human's gonna human. Glory Atarangi successfully hacks into Forobis's signal and realizes it is patched through to a frequency with the kaiju. This leads to an almighty Jaeger fight with the group believing the AI is not only responsible for the attacks, but also their entire predicament. They fight to a standstill with Keys managing to talk sense, reiterating the conflict as a waste of fuel. Forobus explains it's trying to piggyback the signal back to Earth without alerting the kaiju of their presence or mission, but has thus far been unsuccessful. It believes that their destination may be able to boost the signal, but this shouldn't have any impact on their mission, and is theorised that the rift portal must have been deactivated from the Earth's side. The prospect is worrying, and the group continue on, aware that the Ice Rachne, yes, Ice Rachne, is likely <laughs> still stalking them. After a montage of trekking, the group are traversing an icy canyon. Star keep- trekking, Matthew? <laughs> Quite the universe. (laughs) After a montage of trekking, the group are traversing an icy canyon when Keyes begins drift bleeding due to overexposure to solo piloting. It starts to hallucinate the events of his mother's death. Suddenly his suit alters course and Keen Hound heads out onto unstable terrain, shocking the others. Through the drift, we witness the source of Keyes' trauma, a mistrust of humans rather than a fear of kaiju hence his inability to share a drift with someone else. Keyes is dragged back into the present as Gloriatarangi saves Keen Hound from a tentacle that emerges from beneath the surface. In the process, the ice cracks beneath them and Gloriatarangi falls into a crevice, revealing the lair of a tentacled kaiju, Edgemane. The only suit that can seemingly safely fit down is the streamlined Forobus, but the Maori pilots insist the others continue on and get back to Earth. A fight takes place, shot with failure as an inevitability, ultimately leading to the deaths of Ikari and Kauri. The Sang sisters arm themselves and chastise Keys for not having his head in the game, explaining that when they ran with Chow, anyone who endangered the crew was just as big a risk as the kaiju themselves. 
powering down their swords, they march on ahead. They're the ones with swords, they're fine. Unable to rouse Newt, Gottlieb mutters about his friend's stupidity and inability to process the big things, which, be, which must have been the cause for the rift failure and decides to drift with him, knowing the risks it could pose to his own health. Through disconnected imagery, Gottlieb learns that Newt's mind has been corrupted by the kaiju cell and mm-hmm. inadvertently lured the pilots into a trap. Ah, you're keeping that? Okay. I'm keeping an element of that. I the think that's something you can definitely Charlie do. Day whacking about with an iPad nope. on a rooftop for no reason. <laughs> that's what I'm talking about! Um, Gottlieb, quite manically, explains to Marco that the portal was initially supposed to act as an implosive bomb that would envelop the Earth, ripping it apart. But Newt, subconsciously, managed to make the rift generator work, but only momentarily, to give the impression the vengeance plan was a success. So basically, he is corrupted, but he's still a good person, and he's doing what he can to sort of thwart it from the inside. Fight it's all against about... it. Exactly. Yeah. Raleigh impresses the importance of recommissioning Gypsy Danger to recover the pilots, but Marco forbids it, explaining that the signal has gone out to state that the Earth has been destroyed. To reactivate the rift would reveal that this wasn't the case, and all their sacrifices will have been for nothing, that the horrors would start over. The three remaining Jaegers reach the alien construction, but witness a smaller kaiju named Thunderhook. That's a very good kaiju. That kind of sounds like something out of uh, Horizon Zero Dawn, if you've played that game. Yeah, it there's like yeah. There's like thunder jaws and laser hooks and all the robot dinosaurs. Thunderfuck, established and, earlier. Exactly. <laughs> in, yeah, the, in the yeah. outtakes. Exactly. One for the patrons. A smaller kaiju called Thunderhook wandering into the area, only for Ice Rachne to climactically emerge and rip it to shreds. Horobus suggests that this kaiju is a hunter and anticipated their destination. While the pilots sink into momentary despair, the AI offers a plan, but one that could post extreme risk. Using the shredded kaiju corpse, the group carefully enter the self-automated building. Is that a, and I thought they smelled bad on the inside, outside kind of moment? Like, it kind of is. It's, it's yeah. wearing zombie skins to get past the zombies. Oh, it's, yeah, 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 classic, yeah. Smear, smear cold mud on me to avoid the predator, yeah. Um, <laughs> I'm here! <laughs> Kill me! I'm here! (laughs) Using the shredded kaiju corpse, the group carefully enter the self-automated building, narrowly escaping an attack, but the doors will not hold the ice rachne for long. Horobus says that as hoped, it can utilise the resources, but it will take a minute. From the outside of the building, we see ice rachne piercing and shunting the door with its tail before finally penetrating it. It's getting horny, Matt. Was I Tim when I wrote this? Maybe. Maybe you were. (laughs) I mean, I'm hashtag horny for Max. That's my secret cap. <laughs> <laughs> I am always horny for Mech. To its surprise, however, it cannot retrieve its tail, and pulling hard, feels its stinger torn away. Ooh. Reeling back, the door swings open to reveal the three Jaegers have Voltroned! <laughs> yes! <laughs> that's not what the script says, but that's what I'm saying. <laughs> the three Jaegers have combined into one giant Mega Jaeger, a.k.a. a Voltron, that <laughs> yes. lumbers forward with the torn-off tail in hand. The three human pilots, interesting. Three human pilots are barely able to focus with so much drift information surging through their circuits, which are a mix of human construction and precursor technology. You fucking Voltroned it, Matthew. I did. I had to have a constructor motherfucker. I know that the Pacific Rim has it for the Kaiju. Like, we we no. didn't even talk about that in Uprising. Nope. Fuck that mega kaiju bullshit. That's it didn't mega, really look drones very good. And all the things, and it just looks like any no. old fucking thing. It's just slightly bigger. This Rubbish. Ridiculous. Rubbish. Great. Yeah. He starts to reject the drift, chasing the rabbit and sinking into the events of his mother's death. Amidst the chaos and powerful emotions, the sangs and keys are brought into focus by Forobus's orderly memory system, seeing the world as it does, 
and feeling an overwhelming sense of devotion and protection for them. We are treated to alternate versions of previous scenes with the AI analysing Cressplitter's attacks to best inform the group how to respond, which is actioned by Cassi Omega. The sense of betrayal when the survivors turned on it, and finally the confusion trying to process Glory Atarangi's sacrifice. Finally able to get a bit of clarity, the Mega Jaeger battles with the behemoth kaiju in a slow and earth-shattering brawl. Forobus communicates that its analysis of the organic kaiju fuel is complete, and that it is almost constantly self-replenishing. Realising this could potentially be used to solve Earth's energy crisis, the group impress on the urgency of getting back to Earth. The AI explains it can destroy the facility to mask the transmission to Earth, but it would mean their collective destruction. The group unanimously agree it's the right course of action. The battle between Ice Rackney and the Mega Jaeger is intense, and the Jaeger does what it can to disrupt the volatile elements within the installation. Suddenly, Keenhound and Sangao Prospect are jettisoned from the Mega Jaeger, so they sort of split apart, and torn from the shared mm. drift. Disorientated, they receive a communication from Forobus that it is possible for it to detonate the explosion and get the signal to Earth, but could offer a 7% chance of allowing the others to use the kaiju fuel source to activate the rift and save themselves. The pilots acknowledge they don't have time to argue and initiate the process of summoning a breach. The explosion rips through both the Mega Jaeger and Ice Rachne, but a bubble of energy forms around the other two Jaegers. Corrupting their rift engine, but managing to locate the coordinates for Earth, they pass through. Leaving the core unstable, we watch from space as the planet cracks and separates. Back on Earth, Novak bursts into the control room and explains he is receiving a coded message from Forobus about the energy formula and that the survivors are inbound. Celebrations erupt through the facility and helicopters take Marco, Raleigh and key officials to the breach site in the Bay of Tokyo. But upon arrival, there is nothing. A crack of lightning rips through the sky as both Keenhound and Sangio Prospect crash into Tokyo Bay. After brief celebrations, they look out into the largely destroyed Tokyo, trying to figure out what has happened. Keyes explains that he can't raise anyone on the usual comms, and for all intents and purposes, this is Earth. Bomb quietly asks, is it our Earth? Out of the wreckage, a three-headed golden kai- Fuck off, Matthew. A three-headed golden kaiju swoops down and lands on a building. Keyes asks, what category is this thing? And the Jaegers ready themselves to fight. Eat it, In the background, eat it. I hate you so much. This Eat is, it! This is, you're doing to me! <laughs> Eat it! In the background behind them, a giant lizard kaiju, maybe like a, I don't know, like a king of some sort of lizards or something. Some sort of, yeah. Rises from the sea in Japan. <laughs> Let this sink in, listeners. Buzz, buzz, buzz. I know what's going on. Sensing another opponent, the Jaegers are torn which way to engage. The lizard, quote-unquote, inhales deeply before firing blue atomic energy breath blasts <laughs> at the dragon kaiju, laying out a distinct battle cry. What kind of battle cry would that be, Matt? Baru. <laughs> <laughs> it's Richard Nixon. <laughs> um, I'm not going to be able to impersonate it, but uh, we, know the, we know the iconic 1954 roar. We know what I'm doing here. You're doing the 54 roll. Uh, it's always the 54 roll. Yeah. Actually, no, sorry. That's no, not true. It's the 2014 roll. Which is...
more than that, I should add, it's that exact design as well. Oh, holy shit! You're cross. You're doing literally doing the crossover. <laughs> you're doing it to me, Matt. Finish it. We'll, we'll talk it, about it, it. it. It's it's the yeah. Let me let me finish these last few sentences. I'm nearly there. Nearly there. I'm excited. The lizard inhales deeply before firing a blue atomic energy blast at the dragon, letting out a distinct battle cry. Hayun turns to Bomb and says in Korean, "Wait, is he on our side?" Cut to credits. <laughs> Godzilla will so. return in. <laughs> uh, for listeners, that was indeed Godzilla and, um, and King, King Ghidorah. Ghidorah at the end. When you said film, yes. a three-headed gold, I was like, "Fuck off!" No, <laughs> buzz, buzz, buzz. Oscorp. <laughs> That's fuck. King. Yeah. That's yes. the Oscorp moment. Except, a... except mine was in sentence two. Yours was <laughs> the penultimate sentence. Correct. Um, <laughs> oh, you motherfucker. Uh huh. So, so this is this is. Godzilla versus Kong, the current Godzilla canon. Correct. Canon. Because both are owned by Legendary. They are, They're yes. Both. And also, Pacific Rim has always been a possibility to cross over with Godzilla. So, what I was going to call this movie, and I probably will have it at the end credits, John Carr of Mars style, it might be Pacific Rim versus King of the Monsters. Oh, fuck <laughs> off. <laughs> But no, that'd be uh, a definite sequel, and it would be I mean, as long as it stops yeah. Godzilla King of Monsters being made, because that film it's is a bad film, boring. Yeah, it goes, it goes. Literally, you'd have 2013 Pacific Rim, 2014 Godzilla. Godzilla yeah, yeah. Then you'd have what the fuck is this, and then you come back with this other big thing. So yeah, I, yes. So we get Godzilla versus Godzilla King of Monsters plus Jaegers <laughs> mm-hmm. for a third film in that canon. Yes, fucking hell. I don't care about the rest of the film now. I just want to see the, <laughs> just want to see the third one. This this will be my sort of... Uh, oh, by the way, but just a bit of language nonsense. Sangyeo Prospect is Korean for Shark Prospect. Gloria Tarangi is Maori for Glory Shadow. Um, guess, sorry, Kasai Omega is technically Hindi for Butcher Omega. Mm. And Forbus Ocraculi is um, technically just Oracle in Latin. Uh, there you go. I am ready for your feedback. So- I had the most fun with this, so... One thing we 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 kind of um, uh, not not skipped over in the in the the pitch, but we didn't kind of stop to observe on it. Mm. The AI is benevolent and completely on their side, and and in fact sacrifices itself at the end to let them go. Correct. What made you decide to include the AI as as an element there? So the AI is because I feel it's the next logical step. Um, because if you take pilots, the next question is always drones. And I mean that in the sense of Top Gun and all that sort of stuff. <laughs> and I, it does kind of cover it in Pacific Uprising. It's like, it's expensive to train pilots. Can we not just fly a machine? It's like, we have these giant robots. Why are we actually in them? Why can't we just radio control them? Surely that's a lot easier. So I think that's just a natural progression of partly a militaristic mindset, but also a government mindset. What's cheaper, especially if you're looking at saving costs. If you can create get an AI or an app to do it mm. and, and ruin someone's job, then that... Mm. And then they're like, well, in the testing, it didn't save someone's life. And it's like, yeah, the version you're testing, not the version that Novak's been working on, which actually has a personality and is more of a, a, a thing, basically. Mm. And again, like the, you want the, the audience to be very mistrusting of it based on the human experience, you know. And against why what the, the, the Sang saying, like, when we ran with Chow, you know, we did things a certain fucking way. This, this, this is bullshit. And again, it's very anime, if I'm honest, and very much of its source material. In the same way, the, the, like um, Del Toro, I'm inheriting stuff from anime that's like yeah i'm entering the source material maybe too much at times but it's it feels like the world i think i at least try to so 
yeah, the AI felt like a natural progression for, for the world building as much as anything. And also I thought it'd be a nice dynamic to have a thing that requires an emotional drift for a thing that has no real arguable emotions and a man who can't connect with people, mm-hmm. who is forced to connect with people and brought together by technology. So it is the scientific hopeful mission of like, this isn't techno fear, this is techno joy. This is like, this will bring us together. It's not, we didn't create, we created monsters to stop them. What do we do next? We create things that will bring us together. We just happen to still be in the shell of a monster, in theory. And the, the, the world they journey to, uh, yes. we descri- you described it as kind of a, a, an ice tundra world. Um, yes. But we, we also have the, what are they called? The four forebearers? Forerunners? Yeah. Precursors. Pre- precursors. Precursors. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, Those race of motherfuckers. Their factory type thing. Yeah, the facility. Yeah. Um, yeah. How, how do you, do you have any idea of kind of how you picture that? Uh, yes and no. Uh, it's tricky. So the only thing we have is that one scene uh, in the end of Pacific Rim mm. where you have a very distinct alien race mm. in what looks like a fucking supernova, basically. Yeah. So I would see it as an automated thing that they don't need to actually do anything with. Like they just dropped it there to harvest it and it would be left over. It wouldn't be something entirely human. Mm. It would be probably quite organic, but still a construct. Um, it's hard to describe because anything I'm going to describe ends up being like fucking After Earth or something awful like that. I guess the best thing I could describe it as is the television series Lex from the fucking 90s <laughs> um, or maybe even uh, Farscape kind of thing. Okay. Um, yeah. it, or maybe even in a weird way, just to bring it back to series um, six, you know, the corridors in, in, in Prometheus and Alien and stuff, it's just got a very weird otherworldly but not too yeah. dissimilar kind of look to it. Mm. Organic but also clearly constructed that makes sense yeah again i would very much like to see what quaron would bring to that from his just his involvement with everything and hopefully would have the same team of costume fitters designers and so on and so forth that would work with the del toro team uh the various artists and stuff so i think we'd have something would be feel in the world shall we say mm. but other world very other world yeah not just like oh it's a fucking power plant in detroit it's like no no and the the combination, the Mega Jaeger, yes. is that a thing that the Jaegers were always designed to be able to do? Or no, no it's they use the technology they find there to jury rig it kind of thing. Yes, and that is the hardest thing for me to physically describe. I would they say Voltron. if any They Voltron, yes. But I mean like, <laughs> it's like, well what does that look like? It's like uh, is one of them a hand? Uh, kind well, of the lion really becomes enough. the chest. Exactly, yeah. <laughs> And the pterodactyl comes and lands and it's the thing. Yeah. Um, well, they do it really badly in Uprising, as we mentioned, where they just yeah. kind of like, you see their heads like mushing together and then the thing has a separate head. And they're like, okay. So those other two heads have just mushed into a bit of the body then? Like mm. where, where you get real no sense of where anything is in that giant mega mm. kaiju bullshit. Do we actually see the transformation of the Jaeger? We don't, do no, we? we just, it goes we, inside and then it pulls off the stinger bang, and it, then it it's... I'd say it's very much like... Um, Imagine like a Sentai style where it goes like... Whooshing! <laughs> and <laughs> like, much. yeah. It's, it's a very slow... And that's why I mentioned that, it's going to be a slow rim, fight. Yeah. A really slow fight. Well, the fights are... Like when they're running about and they're the really big ones, they are mm. noticeably slow. They mm, just do... Yes. Every impact we felt. Yeah. yeah. Like, that kind of makes sense where the, the Mega Jaeger would be the biggest, slowest, but also the most powerful of them all kind of thing. Yeah. yeah. And that's why I think you would you would notice every recognizable piece. It would look like genuinely like, like, um, like a Frankenstein's monster. You can see the bits of people there. You just can't make out a person. Mm. 
um, in in theory at least. It's 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 a, a bastardization of things. It's I mean and again like in the same way like got tentacles and snakes and <laughs> scorpions and shit. It's it's all based on you know animalistic stuff. That's been more, and the way I always describe this stuff whenever designing aliens, I always think if you look at pictures of this is when people took like uh, I can't remember the word for it. Um, basic biologists where they'll say mm, dinosaurs. We always have a lot of opinions on how dinosaurs look, and we're always wrong, and it's always changing because that's science, and that's you know mm. we we uncover new information. We always compare it to things we already know. Hence, why you know the Victorian version of what an iguanodon looks like is like you fucking idiots, because we didn't know. Um, in the same way that you would ask a individual who would make that kind of stuff up to make the same thing, like draw me a horse mm. using only the skeleton, not what you know of a <laughs> yeah. horse. How would this thing look? That's how you make aliens, in my opinion. You take not the like oh I think fucking Avatar for example. It's like oh it's a panther. Yeah, I can see it's a panther. What's make it alien like? It's got an extra two legs. Oh, it's blue. Up. Yeah. Oh, it's a horse. It's so, oh, it's a horse. It's literally a horse. Just it's a bit taller. Dumb. But it's got big old spindly say, like, legs. It's, it's yeah, a horse. Really? Like like Dali. Um, <laughs> but if you take that from the skele- uh, skeletal side and just say, right, build, you see that horrific looking skull? In the same way that we, in theory, uh, one of the origins in theory for Cyclops, like from, from the Greco sort of history. From and, X-Men, and yeah, yeah. Yes. The, the, yeah, exactly. <laughs> the Scott, Scott Summers origin. Is that apparently the idea is that potentially Greek people found elephant skulls and thought, my God, this must have been a giant with a single eye because of the nature of how its <laughs> skulls looks. If you look from, if you if you you know build it up from that, you're gonna get some really interesting constructions of things. So that's when I say like, oh, it's a snake-like thing with a thing on its head and hammerhead. Hammerhead. It's like it's a rough description of something that's really quite. Uh, yeah. Hard hard to describe. I apologize, but no, yeah. No, no, so no. It's, it's, yeah. Yeah. So yes, the the the, the mega mega Jaeger would be very distinctly. You can see the bits and the components because obviously clearly color coordinated and very distinct styles to them all. But it's clear that this is a very very difficult thing, and they're all desperately holding the like I can do it. I fucking I can do this, and they're all bleary eyed and mm-hmm. bleeding from the nose and that sort of stuff. But it would look cool, and it wouldn't be for a toy. It would be <laughs> for a fucking sideshow collectibles five hundred dollar <laughs> single unit that would be uh, astoundingly cool. Nice. So with the AI, yes, I notice you're not keeping Glados from Portal. There's no, no, there's no Ellen McLean coming in. I there would and... actually say she would be the voice of the the AI that doesn't save them in the testing program. Nice, I like and that's that. why Cause... Jason Isaacs come through with his sort of charming, soothing, calm voice. Because <laughs> I do love that little reference. Like, yeah, we're going to get the woman from Portal to do the the AI thing, and not really explained why gypsy avenger has the same ai as gypsy <laughs> danger but no nope. even has a similar kind of name fuck it who knows it's just yeah. why not Branding. Um, maybe we should have picked something that isn't a racial slur <laughs> <sighs> yeah, i'm in the old jippo danger terrible like, fucking ooh, name no no you're not pikey punch you're like mm, i don't think <laughs> you can punch. no fucking hell no um, I really like the casting. Oh, the cast is fantastic! Absolutely, there's there's, there's some people in there that I don't know as well. Um, sure, but and that's I, kind I of trust my you. Hope, yeah. Um, and and the people I do know are are uniformly excellent, and I would be really interested to see some of them. Yeah, tackle this for any, stuff for a lot of people. Obviously, listening, they're like, I don't know these names. I don't know these people. I don't know what they're in. It's like that's kind of the point, and I feel mm. like that's something that Del Toro does a lot. Mm. It's like, yeah, you don't know them yet, but you fucking will, and you'll love them. And also, I wanted to do a thing that's also present in the other Pacific Rim film. I wanted people to die quite a lot. I didn't want it to be disposable. I want them to have a lot of build-up a start so they actually components you feel when they die. Their sacrifice is important and things mm. like that. But I wanted them to die because 
well, partly for narrative reasons because it makes you know it highlights the urgency of the of what's happening, but also more importantly because happens a lot in the first Pacific Rim. It's like, oh fuck, the Chinese brothers with the fucking three of them. Oh, bro- oh, he's dead. Fuck, shit. Mm. That was fast, but not in the way like in Spy Kids 3D with I'm the guy. Yeah. Oh no, I'm, I'm dead. <laughs> Crap. Um, yeah. I I really like the idea of humanity then turning around and going we're going to use this idea that the the precursors had and go off and find new resources slash basically become the precursors yeah um i think it's a really clever way to extend the because there's a kind of climate change metaphor at work in pacific rim there is the, there the, is the original one and to carry that on and and continue that idea i i do there's i have a slight worry that's Mm. having so much of the action on an alien world will remove like you don't you don't have the city to act as a scale comparison for that's the fair. that's very fair mm. um and, and well, like a bunch of toys just kind of punching yes, each other yeah, very true it would be very, very true. you haven't got the ability to then go down to kind of human level action to observe the effects on the city at the same time kind of thing that mm-hmm. you do in the original but um, yeah that's fair that's entirely fair yeah, the the mission I'm it's kind of the point I guess, but feels very Jaeger heavy. Whereas mm-hmm. I mean we we mentioned and you've tied it into the 2014 Godzilla movie and speaking of other somewhat mediocre actors at time Aaron Taylor Johnson <laughs> he's fine in that film, but his mm-hmm. perspective and the the reason that film is so unique in the kind of the Godzilla canon and in the way mm-hmm. it's shot and things is that you keep seeing the kaiju and Godzilla and the Mubos, Mutos, 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 yes, yeah, from human eye level. And I, like, I agree with that because that makes it fucking fantastic. I, I yeah. do. Yeah, as, I, as I, frustrated as a lot of people got with that movie, it was like, oh, there's no, Godzilla and the door closed. Okay, genius, no. cool, that's good. I know, I really like that film. But, so also did it in Shin Godzilla quite a lot as well. Mm, yeah, and I think that perspective, and you're totally right, Tim. Not only does it give a sense of scale to the battles that are going mm. on, you, it gives perspective in that way. I wonder if having a second plane of action on a on a more human side, and not obviously not you know Herman and what he's up to and stuff, mm, but that's mm, through mm. the and Marco are through the portal and stuff. But whether they would have to do something, one of them has to get out of the Jaeger on this icy planet and do it by hand, for want of a better phrase, rather than mm. doing it in the giant robot and and sure. bringing an element of vulnerability and all that kind of stuff to it. Where like you see them running. Maybe I'm thinking really cheesy here, but like maybe not literally. Like mm. they're dodging between, and then there's the giant stinger tail come slamming down behind a few yeah. inches behind them. And well, all like, Whoa. see, actually, like, I, I did have that at one point, and I had to get rid of it. So, for example, at one point, I have right, a thing fine. where I just tried to. Offer no, 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 no. I'm, 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 How dare you? That's very rude. no. I'm, I'm saying I'm there with you because I get. Okay. I agree with you, <laughs> and I agree with both of you. you. You're entirely correct. My hope is that we'd see them so much in before they get to the alien world that we'd have the established scale. It's not, you're right though, it doesn't happen when the actual fighting happens. And on a world of unfamiliarity, the only thing familiar to the audience is the mechs. So that's tricky. My, but at one point, I don't remember when, unfortunately, I'm going crazy now. There is a section where they are outside and, and Keys mm. is rehabilitating and he's, he's sort of doing his almost like CBT. He's going back and doing his own uh, regressive starting in the drift to, to cope with, with his own grief and things. And the other pilots are outside of the Jaegers. They're not mm. inside piloting, they're outside things. And they and the thing is, they're like, oh, and then an attack happens. And that is something I, I kind of drew out more, but for word count, I reduced it. The idea is them getting back into the Jaegers is really problematic mm. because they're like, go, go, go. 
and one would fall over and like, well, fuck, fuck, fuck. And to get from where they are to the actual cockpit to get in just by running would take them at least six minutes because of how big the fucker is. Mm. So uh, the idea of like, when you say, like, oh, you know, like the stinger comes down, I had lots of ideas about that. I thought, no, because that's my problem with Godzilla King of the Monsters, because if you can just run away from it, it's not a threat. You're running as, and, 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 like, all, like all the actions happening there. If they take three steps over there, then you're not catching up with them. They're gone. Yeah. That mm-hmm. kind of thing. So it it was genuinely a logistic thing that I thought, I can't make this work. How am I going to get them outside doing things? Like, they have to actually talk to each other rather than just drifting and things. Mm. I have to come outside. But in the, then it was really problematic. But I thought, again, as I scaled it down a bit, I would I would agree. I would want something in there that gives that uh, threat of, or how can I put this? The reminder that outside the suit of armor, you are just flesh. Yeah, there's something soft and squishy on the inside. Kind of. Yes. You, yeah. um, you, you could maybe have the, the Keen Hound mech be a significantly smaller because it is mm. a, a solo one and be closer to like the kind scrapper. Kind of like scrapper, yeah, yeah. Yeah, um, yeah, I have no problem with that. That would at least give you at a different scale to work with. Yeah, sure. And a, and a different, you know... That's... Makes it faster as well, that'd be good. Yeah, yeah. So... It could be the head of the construction unit. <laughs> yes! That's exactly what would happen. The small one makes up the head. I like it, Tim. There we go. <laughs> no, that's actually. Yeah, I, I agree with that. That's good. That's a good shout. Thumbs but no, up. No, I, th- I think a really interesting pitch. Something that takes it in a lot more interesting places than Uprising tries to mm. go, which does sort of just want to be the greatest hits all over again. Mm. Yeah, this this feels more like a follow up and deals with more of the consequences of the first film, which, as we discussed in the opening half of this show. It's a huge problem in the second film. It's just like suddenly there's all these Jaegers and there's no consequences. And we'll mm. just, you know, there's infinite drones and infinite Jaegers where you're like, we are running out of money. We are running out of resources. <laughs> we need to do something. And that mm. is a, unfortunately, that's a pretty real fucking threat to, yeah. <laughs> to our yeah. existence as humans in 2020, unfortunately. Mm. This is a real thing. And this is only 10 years in the future. And then just genuinely could be a thing of like, we need to start asteroid mining or something and doing something different and finding yeah. mm. sources of fuel and water out off of our planet so we don't keep draining and you know withering mother earth for want of a better phrase sure and i think i really really like twisting it and having the humans essentially being the precursors and us going and invading and looking for resources and stuff mm-hmm. is a really nice thing that they kind of hint at at the very beginning because obviously jake says right at the end like yeah and we're going to take it to them because we're going to get a sequel. Oh, no, wait, we didn't make enough money. We're going to have a sequel. But they didn't. And you get the impression that, I mean, again, it's the Ender's Game thing of like, yeah, and we're coming for you directly to your and home Anita world. Battle Angel and it, um, Starship Troopers. Day Revengeance and yeah. everything. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. yeah, yeah. I think what you did is a more interesting version of that where you actually have a reason for them other than revenge, which is just cliche tropey bollocks it was like next we're coming for you and we're gonna hit you where it hurts this time it's personal all right fine fuck off well whereas you've been like it's not personal this is a necessity and this is the only option we have and as you said it's it's nice to have almost like we have one shot at this and we don't know what the fuck is going on Mm. and this could work this could backfire we don't know and this kind of makes us the bad guys, but we don't really have a choice. So, yeah, it's an interesting like moral dilemma to put the existence of humanity into a thing 
Mm. Imagine humans could only exist if fracking happened. You <laughs> hinted at fracking in the in the actual well, pitch it, as well. The universe gives you all the clues and the answers. And the world building that I was told effectively from Pacific Rim is why did you make Jaegers? Uh, you know, in the in the second film it was like to make the big fight at the end. Why is in the first one to survive, motherfucker? Yeah, that's why we built the wall, and that was stupid. That didn't work either. It's like there you go. So how do they survive this? It's different between yeah, survival and war, isn't it? Really, like yeah. Built these things for war, you built them to survive. Yeah. Are you fighting something or are you surviving a battle? Like, yeah. yeah. And yeah. then there's the question of like, well, are we doing the right thing? Are we, in fact, no better than them? I also wanted the, the reason I made it an ice planet, by the way, partly as in, in the Mountains of Madness sort of reference, but mostly because I wanted it to be a barren world, not boring to look at visually. Because um, they have really cool sort of structures in terms of the ice carved uh, sort of rock and that kind of thing, and feel very almost Lovecraftian in its strange angular ways mm. and things. But I wanted it to feel like this is what happens when you harvest something to death. Mm. You know, all that's left is the big thing, the one big thing in the ocean that's you know running around eating everything else, and a factory that doesn't really do anything on them anymore. That, that's that's all there is. That's your legacy. Mm. That's the precursor legacy. That's eventually man's legacy if they carry on the way they're going. That's why they have the whole sustainable fuel. There's no question about that, what that world will do. Will they create more Jaegers? We have infighting. We can have another film about that. We can do, do they actually, you know, because you, you still have that tension between a military mindset, a scientific mindset, a political mindset, because that's, you know, that's Twilight Imperium, motherfucker. <laughs> <laughs> and it's all these things at the same time as these people who are adrift dimensionally fighting monsters still. And it's like, well, that's what we got to do now. I always maintain the best science fiction is just a period film um, with a different skin. So mm. for example, it's like, what happens? Okay, well, we're going to set this on a small island somewhere. Um, okay, fine. It's a fictional island. Okay, fair enough. And what do you do then? Well, we're going to sail on the other side of the world to see what's over there. You know, colonial shit, like early colonial shit. I'm not commending it, but you know, it's like, right. Well, what happens when you get there? Well, nothing's established. We don't know what's on the horizon. Everything's terrifying. Things might kill us. There might be people. There might not be people. There might be diseases. We don't fucking know. But we do know one thing. We're going to fuck it up. And you're like, <laughs> Why? Greed and necessity, and someone told us to. And that's a thing you can kind of channel into science fiction really well. Space should be terrifying in that regard. And exploring alien worlds shouldn't be, as much as I love Star Trek, it shouldn't always be the cool, like, oh, let's just sit down here where we got it. Oh, that's quite interesting. And bugger off again. It should be like, right, every time we step out of this submarine, we might die. Mm. <laughs> and uh, yeah, this is a meandering statement about, you know, Pacific Rim here. The, the idea like, we're going to go to our first planet to look for resources. And even if the portal had worked fine, everything was all good, and they'd gone through, they still would have got to planet and go, uh, no, there's nothing here. I guess we've got to try another planet now. Fuck. Mm. And I, I kind of wanted maybe a conversation at some point, uh, maybe from some character somewhere, that there's always a possibility we could do this forever and never find anything, because out there is a bigger, badder colonizer in the form of the precursors who are already doing this, and they're already running out of resources themselves. Mm. But yes, a lot of shit going on. Cool. I liked it. Much more Thank than Uprising. You. It's a lot more interesting. It has a lot more gravitas and interesting parts to it. And then it fucking crosses over with Godzilla. So. <laughs> yeah, it does. I only can assume now that now people are aware uh, on the Discord, like Matt Nelson and, and John Firth Clark, be like, hang on, hang on, hang on, hang on, hang on. Matt, Matt. Yeah. So you did a big mech movie. I did do a big mech movie. It was very fun. Thank you. Yeah. Cool, cool. And you brought Godzilla in. Yeah. Why isn't Godzilla in from fucking paragraph one, you piece of shit? It's like, <laughs> because I need to ease people in gently, and then we come back for a sequel and we go and balls to the wall. Because Matt's going to write the sequel just for fun, because <laughs> that's what Mac does. Probably will do. Write my own little fan fiction and publish it online. Do we get, <laughs> from, I'm going to rename it now, I guess, 
Jaeger Godzilla, which is Mecha Godzilla, but Pacific <laughs> Rimified. Not gonna lie, because I don't know. I'm throwing up the metal horns here, folks. <laughs> Fuck yes, <laughs> give me Jaeger Godzilla or Yay Godzilla. <laughs> Yezilla. <laughs> I'm very much hoping we get some some listener art out of this. Uh, if oh, anyone's talented at uh, uh, mech or kaiju designs, I'd be intrigued Bring to see to your me. interpretations of Matt Matt's descriptions. We'll have Although to we did get a horrifying the, cowl. We did the cat, <laughs> the, cat the cow owl. Yeah, if you're if you mm. sorry, the, the, random plug here, but if you're not on our Discord, you're missing out, guys. You got to you got to, and it's not just a regular plug. It's a good community, good people, and good conversations. And uh, the the art channel in yeah. particular is dominated by uh, Matt Nelson, who is a comic book artist, and Wolf Courtney, who's an illustrator as well. Yeah, and it's just like crazy mad things. And Matt very much terrified <laughs> us with the cowl thing. <laughs> yeah, um, yes. It was monstrous. Yeah. You know the scene in Alien Resurrection where uh, you see all the abomination versions of Ripley <laughs> clones? That. On that Good. note, well done, Matt, for crossing over Gojira and Pacific Rim and causing all sorts of fanboy wet dreams. <laughs> <laughs> um, if people want to follow you and your Japanophile exploits on the <laughs> internet, how can they do that, Mr. Stogner? Stogs, S-T-O-G-H-Z. You can go to the redrighthand.co.uk to read my reviews. You can go to cheeseman.com to see the things I make. Tim, if you were a kaiju, which was effectively a cross of two different animals, what would you be? Uh, I would be a uh, a raccoon and a moose, uh, and I would uh, just so dark eyes and big horns. I would just I would just uh, destroy people's uh, wheelie bins. <laughs> <laughs> just just about this this blood cutting. <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> just destroy a bin <laughs> with this like eight and a half foot tall raccoon with antlers. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> I love that shit, Tim. Where can we, where can we find you on the internet? <laughs> get on it. Get get drawing your raccoons. Yes, or your raccoons. M- moons. Moons. <laughs> moons. <laughs> That's no moon. It's a raccoon. <laughs> <laughs> uh, you can find me on Twitter, trivia underscore lad. I am the the second best account to follow after Raccoon Every Hour, which is an actual account <laughs> that I follow on there. Brilliant. Uh, Jack, where can people find you? I am JLW Chambers on all the social media. It's nice and easy. And the show itself is Sequelizers on all the social media. It's nice and easy. The name of the podcast, stick it into your social media of choice and you'll find our profile on there. And uh, if you can't find any of that stuff, you want to find all the various podcast services are on you want to find the links to the discord the links to the patreon the links to the merch shop anything like that you can go to sequelizers.com a one-stop shop for all your sequelizing goodness and yeah we appreciate your support if you want to rate and review us on your podcast service of choice if you're able to please support us on patreon.com slash sequelizers we appreciate any support you can offer whether that's monetary or rating I don't know how you word that. In the form of stars. By putting us in your ears. Exactly. Or listening to (laughs) us or sharing us with your friends, retweeting us, reposting stuff, joining the Discord, all that stuff very much helps us feel uh, more valued, more appreciated, and uh, more more like the show is worthwhile. We're not just... Encouraged to do more of the things we do. Exactly, yeah. yeah. Makes me feel as tall as a Jaeger and as... How many is Brilliant. Uh, on that note, on the, on the note of horny Tim Kaiju, the Rakus, if you will. Thank you very much for listening, everybody. We'll be back 
next week with a little something interesting. Let's put it that way.